Binge Mode is presented by Bud Light. Bud Light is all about bringing friends together. And we're wondering which unlikely pairs will team up this season. Seeing so many old friends and new come together. For example, this past episode we saw a post-funeral feast full of drinking, Mm. laughter, Mm. games, flirtation. Bud Light is reminding you to enjoy responsibly. 21 and up. I need to tell you something. You have to swear you'll never tell another soul. What is it? Binge mode contains adult content. How can I promise to keep a secret if I don't even know what it is? Binge mode also contains spoilers. Swear it. I swear it. Swear And now, binge mode. I owe them the truth. Even if the truth destroys us. It won't. It will. I've never begged for anything. But I'm begging you. Don't do this. Please. You are my queen. Nothing will change that. And they're my family. We can live together. We can. I've just told you how. Hello! Yeah! And welcome, yes, to Binge Mode Game of Thrones. Proudly part of the Ringer Podcast Network. I'm Mallory Rubin, executive editor of TheRinger.com. Oh! Great website it is. Really is. Joining me today. Yes. Now that he's finished asking which one of you cowards shit in his pants. I hate when they do that. <laughs> it's Ringer Senior Creative, your maester, Jason Concepcion. Stop shitting my pants. Now I saw him ride that thing and I saw that it's time for binge mode Game of Thrones. We hope that you subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review us. Seven-pointed star for reading, five stars for binge mode reviews. Also, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at binge underscore mode, Mm. a.k.a. the underscore. Mm. And join our Facebook group, which is just for binge mode fans, and which is an excellent place to plot out a scorpion-free path to Dragonstone. Just keep your peepers open. And please, please head to ringer.com slash shop to check out our brand new binge mode merch, including not even a maester protect ghost and knights of summer tees, binge logo dad hats, and a new crew neck sweatshirt ideal for those stressful journeys on the open seas. And please, come on and join us at the third annual Encanto Thrones, which yes. is coming to Nashville, Tennessee, this summer, July 12th to 14th. Celeb guests include Nikolai Kostar Waldau. Wow. Jamie. John Bradley. Woo! Sam. With more coming soon. Full weekend day passes and special Valerian passes are available now at ConnorThrones.net. So get your passes now and come sail with us. Last time on Binge Mode, we explored. How Last Stands Shaped, Season 8, Episode 3 of Game of Thrones, The Long Night. And today, we're diving deep. Deep! Into the fourth episode of Season 8. After you listen to this, be sure to check out all of the other Thrones offerings on various Ringer platforms, including Talk the Thrones with us and Chris Ryan, live on Twitter, right after the East Coast airing of Game of Thrones on Sunday nights. Ask the Maester, and Ask the Maester live on Tuesdays with your Maester. 
Zach Cram and Riley McAtee's pre-Capables preview pod every Friday, and so much more. Tons of great writing on The Ringer. Check it all out. As always, speculation and spoiler warning for today's pod. We will be going deep on details from the show and the books alike from this episode and this season and all that came before it. So make sure the fire in your bed chamber is nice and toasty. That's right. Comfy for company. Yes. Because it's time to break down Season 8, Episode 4, The Last of the Starks. Mal? Yeah? We may have defeated them, but we still have the plot points to contend with, so let's offer up a brief refresher on what actually happened in The Last of the Starks Mm. by taking a quick trip. And man, it is quick these days. Boy. Rapid. Rapid. Brisk. Bullet train. Too brisk, some might say. Let's take a quick bullet train down our very own King's Road. In Winterfell, we open on a somber note. Many funeral pyres stretched from the walls across the yard of Winterfell. The survivors honoring their dead as John shares a eulogy and the pyres are lit. In the Great Hall, there's a feast to celebrate the victory and honor the slain. Mm. Toasts are made. Mm -hmm. Danny raises Gendry to the Lord of Storm's End. Later, she exits in a huff, upset that the North and the people she risked her life's mission to save still are giving her the cold shoulder. People begin pairing off Uh to celebrate with sex. Hell yeah. Lot of sex. Hell yeah. On Game of Bones. Hell yeah. A lot of sex. Hell yeah. At Winterfuck. What else we got? Winterfuck. <laughs> Someone is coming. <laughs> Hopefully. Pod, the sex god, he of the famous rod, leaves with not one, but two women. Pod sex rod. Gendry, poor sweet Gendry, goes to find Arya. And in real, said I had had sex three times before, but really I've had sex once Fashion proposes marriage, but Arya rejects him. Sweetly, kindly, but rejects him. That's not her. Then, Jamie goes to Brienne's chambers. And folks, they fuck. They do. They really do. Special scene. Hello, Sir Brienne. It's the cable guy. Got your new set-top box. I think you ordered one. Danny enters John's chambers to find him absolutely slammered. She asks him not to tell anyone about his lineage, and he insists he doesn't want to be king. But, man, I got to tell Sansa and Arya. She begs him not to. In the library, the leaders discuss their next move. Danny wants to move on Cersei as soon as possible. Can't let the opposing force continue to gain strength. Sansa, meanwhile, smartly thinks that the armies need a rest. And after we saw Rhaegal toppling through the air with his holes in his wings, clearly that was right. Sansa suggests that they wait, let people heal, and Danny disagrees fiercely. John sides with Danny, says that the armies will march to serve their queen. In the Godswood, John tells Arya and Sansa, well, Bran actually does it, about the truth of his parentage, and we have no idea what their reaction is. We don't know. Carve out four hours of the podcast for us to talk <laughs> We don't about know this. what they have to say about this. No idea. At an inn, a pub, an inn, somewhere (laughs) near Winterfell. (laughs) Who can say where exactly? An empty pub because everyone else is off fucking still. Yeah. Tyrion and Jamie are drinking, talking about Brienne. When Bronn enters, brandishing the crossbow, 
He demands payment to not kill them as Cersei had ordered him to. And what does he negotiate his way to, despite Jamie being like, absolutely not? And Tyrion says, okay. Fucking High Garden, the it's seat pretty, of power in the Reach. Pretty great. Outside Winterfell, Arya meets the Hound on the road, and they are both heading south, it seems. On the battlements, Sansa and Tyrion have a chat, and they discuss the Stark Targaryen alliance. Sansa does not want Jon to go south, and understandably so, given the family history. And then she makes a choice, tells Tyrion, though again, we don't see her actually share the information. We know that she has. Tells Tyrion about Jon's lineage. In the yard, John says farewell to Sam and Gilly and Tormund, and shockingly, and without petting him, Ghost, who will now be accompanying the free folk beyond the wall. Who will mend his ear? Who will look after his wounded flank? I will never recover from this. Mallory Rubin is irate. I will never she is recover from this. Never. On the sea. <sighs> Heading toward Dragonstone. Tyrion and Varys discuss Danny's leadership. And the truth, which Tyrion has now shared with Varys, about who Jon is. Varys, very concerned as he's happy to tell Tyrion about Danny's state of mind. Danny is soaring above the sea on Drogon with Rhaegal flying nearby. Not a care in the world when suddenly Rhaegal is hit by three scorpion bolts and tumbles lifeless into the water. Bells for Rhaegal, who deserve much better. Shrieks of fucking outrage for Rhaegal going out this way. Danny spots the attackers. Euron Greyjoy's fleet just out in the open water, which she didn't see him before. Euron fires his weapons at the Targaryen fleet, sinking several ships. Tyrion, Varys, and Grey Worm wash up on the beach on Dragonstone. Missandei, meanwhile, has been taken prisoner. Isaac, give us the sound of wind kind of whooshing through the holes in Rhaegal's wings. The holes that meant he shouldn't have been flying in the first place, perhaps. On Dragonstone, Danny holds Council of War. War Council's common now. Varys warns her to her face, though a little late here, my guy, about destroying the city. Cautions her against it. Begs her not to do the thing she's thinking of. And Tyrion convinces her somehow that it's worth just one more chat with Cersei. Gets Danny to agree to parlay outside the gates of King's Landing and try to convince Cersei to surrender. Later, Varys discusses treason. With Tyrion, shaken by what he sees as Danny's instability, he wants to hand the throne to John. You know, for the realm. Someone must. The realm. Back at Winterfell, when news of Cersei's attack on the fleet and Danny's seemingly imminent offensive on King's Landing reach the north, Jamie has a crisis of confidence. He leaves Winterfell in the middle of the night, riding away to Cersei as Brienne, who begged him to stay, weeps in her robe. It's fucking ultimate. It is fu- a gutting scene. Ultimate fuckboy shit from Jamie. We're going to be talking about this a lot. A lot. King's Landing. Danny and Tyrion and Grey Worm in a small, real small cohort of Unsullied stand at the walls of King's Landing as Drogon sits on the ground. Cersei and Euron Ludicrous. on the battlements are holding Miss Sandai captive. Tyrion and Kyburn. Sorry. Exchange terms. Danny wants Cersei to surrender, release Masande. Cersei wants Danny to surrender, or Masande will die here and now, because why keep a valuable hostage that might prevent a vicious assault on the castle that you call home? Tyrion addresses Cersei directly 
asking her to reconsider. And appealing to Cersei's logic and heart has literally never worked before, but let's try it once more. (laughs) Mentioning her pregnancy, which Euron found out about approximately 30 seconds earlier, but doesn't think is weird. No reaction. Cersei asks Missandei if she has any last words, and she says, Dracarys. Yes. A clear message to her queen. And then the mountain executes her. Danny walks away enraged. Bells! Bells! For Missandei of Noth! May you walk the beaches of Noth for all of eternity! Jason? Yeah? I've podcasted as honestly as I can. Each of us has a choice to make. Mm -hmm. I pray we choose wisely. And that gets us to this episode's big idea. So Mm. let's cut right to the core of it by sticking it with the pointy end. The defining theme of this episode is choice. Let's begin with Daenerys Targaryen. She's doing great. She has the many titles. Quite an episode for Danny. Let's start in the North Mm -hmm. with what for many was a place and time of celebration and for Danny was a place and time of severe isolation mm-hmm. and existential dread. Let's talk quickly about the funeral because that moment with Jorah when Danny kisses his beautiful corpse. <laughs> this is Looks a, good even dead. I'll just say it. <laughs> Something going on with his eyebrows. Anyway. <laughs> that bookend with the episode reminding us in the beginning of Jorah who Danny has lost before she loses Masande at the end her two friends, her two most trusted advisors and dearest friends in the world, is obviously fully deliberate. Yes. And, you know, we spoke last week and last episode about what Jorah meant to Danny, but when we see that emotion, that absolutely unvarnished despair over losing somebody that she felt this way about and trusted this much, especially heading into an episode where the question of trust is so central yes. and paramount— We have to just again revisit those lessons that he always imparted and the role that he played in her life, reminding her that she had a gentle heart, reminding her that she had to be her people's strength when they were weak. That's gone now. And we really, really felt the absence of it throughout the rest of the episode. You really feel it in the feasting scene when Tormund goes to speak to John, drinking from that horn of— yeah fermented something milk. Who knows what kind of milk is in there? Um, and it's just gassing John up. He comes back and keeps fighting. Here north of the wall and then back here again. He keeps fighting. He keeps fighting. He climbed on the fucking dragon and fought. What kind of person climbs on a fucking dragon? A madman or a king? Who is going to speak for Danny like this after Jorah, after Missande? Right. I mean, this is really part of what really galls Danny is that now she has to be her own advocate. She's right. alone, essentially, having to say, look at all the things that I've done. You're forgetting that I brought the dragons, that I brought the army. John has, in a lot of ways, his whole life been trying to escape that kind of, like, glory hounding. Yes. And <laughs> ironically now, people are willing to do it for him. I mean, the substance of what Tormund is saying, yeah. almost word for word, right. describes Dan. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? Climbing on a fucking dragon. What kind of person climbs on a fucking dragon? Well, where did John get the dragon? Yeah. The <laughs> hero north of the wall. She didn't have to do that. That's right. That's right. She didn't have to go. That's right. And the fact that people just forget about that, because it, it'd be uncouth or people would 
knock her again for being arrogant or being the Mad Queen if she read them her own press. And it's just so useful to have someone say, hey, you guys are forgetting Daenerys didn't have to help you. She didn't have to come north and she just doesn't have that. Right. And she'll return to this moment when she and John are speaking in private later and how much it pained her to witness this. She keeps looking over with this look of, you know, and it's somewhat petty on the one hand, but on the other hand, it's a fair to ask the question, what about me? Right. Well, it feels like an injustice because yeah. it actually is one. And it's not like they totally ignore Danny. You know, there's the the requisite, the dragon, the dragon queen the dragon toast. Queen. Little golf clap action. And then, and then she, people are spilling their drinks over well, themselves to toast John. Well, when she, and then she, right after that, Danny very classily says to Arya, Arya Stark, the hero, Winterfell, what does she get in return for that? Fire eyes from Sansa yeah. to the point where what does Danny do ultimately after she all leaves. of this? She gets she up leaves. and leaves. And Varys stalks her watching with mounting concern. What was in that scene other than Danny's insecurity, though? What else was on that table? Oh, man. We got to quickly talk about the cup. Listen, night shoots in Winterfell and the freezing cold, sleet, snow. Got to get that battle of Winterfell right. People get a little run down, a little tired. What do they need? They need a cup of coffee. What was on the table? <laughs> that means Famously, a cup of coffee, and someone in our Slack equated it to the picture of the Fire <laughs> Festival cheese sandwich. And that might seem a little bit hyperbolic, but I actually think there's something to that. You know, like the discourse around thrones, especially after this episode, has been heated. Oh, yeah. Very unpleasant week. People are upset about storytelling choices, about the way characters are characterized, about things they've end up doing various issues and the cup fairly or unfairly like the cheese sandwich picture plays into these existing narratives Mm -hmm. that the showrunners have checked out that they're not paying attention that they don't care as much as the fans i'm not lending any credence to those narratives all I'm saying is the cup seems to lend credence to those narratives <laughs> right. in a way that is very hard to dismiss. So here's what I found so interesting about right. this. There have actually have been mistakes like this Many. in Game of Thrones right. episodes before. You know, there's yeah. the Patagonia vest or right. in the early Beyond the, the Walls. The Patagonia they, vest and jeans. Yes. So stuff like this has happened. Why has there never been an outcry? I think the reaction and not just, you know, Starbucks cashing in on tons and tons and tons of, in essence, free advertising for what was ultimately not a Starbucks cup. But I feel very bad for the purveyor of the craft services there who was like, this was my big moment to get my logo out there. But it was just pixelated enough that people thought it was Starbucks. Anyway, it spoke to how much goodwill they've lost. Yeah. Because that's a great point. In the past, you could say, of course, people make mistakes. People make mistakes. Especially people who are working that hard. As you said, all the night shoots grinding yourself into dust, trying to make something that you know every person in the world, or at least it feels that way, is watching under a microscope, just waiting to tell you how you fucked it up. Like, that has to be a paralyzing feeling. And in the past, it's like, okay, things happen. Now it's, oh my God, yeah, look at what's happened. Let's return to that feast, because something else interesting happened that didn't involve Danny directly, but established a tone for the episode at large. There's a moment when Tyrion and Davos are speaking. Tyrion says, and they're looking out at the room, all these people, all their drama. We may have defeated them, them meaning the Night King, the Army of the Dead. 
but we still have us to contend with. Now, this is the key idea that really shapes the episode and seems bound to shape the rest of the season and ultimately the series. We still have us to contend with each other, the people in the world. These characters were able to put their differences aside and band together against the Night King because he was a threat to all of them. As soon as that existential threat was gone and some fucking occurred, (laughs) obviously, (laughs) they all fall apart. Yeah, instantly. Almost right away. They came together to save humanity and then that humanity breaks them down again. We see it in very painful fashion. Oh, man. With Danny and John. So Danny goes to John's chambers and she says, I saw them gathered around you. I saw the way they looked at you. I know that look. So many people have looked at me that way, but never here, never on this side of the sea. John, of course, is like, yeah, but I don't even want it, which is not a great response, but it's okay. And she says, noting fairly like that doesn't matter. (laughs) People react to you this way and other people Mm -hmm. will use you as their cat's paw. Right. She's seen enough of the world to know. As their ladder to power by lifting you up. Those lines, I saw them gather around you. I saw the way they looked to you. I know that look. On one level, very surface level, it's like, okay, get over it, Danny. But on the another level, when literally your life and survival is mm-hmm. tied up in the way people react to you, it's an existential question for Danny. And it's also like very brave of her to say, I've taken stock of this situation. I'm not like checked out. Mm-hmm. I understand that people are not reacting to me in the way that I need if I'm going to lead them. Right. It actually shows a level of self-awareness that she's often accused of not possessing. We talked about this a little bit on Talk to Thrones on Sunday night. I found myself uncomfortably, even though in general my response to the scene was very pro-Danny and I I, I just felt an unbelievable surge of empathy for her in this particular moment. I found myself thinking of Viserys Mm. and the— speech he gives in Vastothrax Jorah about how, you know, he's never gotten what they gave to After the stallion heart. Exactly. And now that was different, of course, because his whole thing was, how can you rule without anyone's fear or love, right? And Danny's thing is, well, I actually know what it feels like to get what you just got. Not, I've never had it. It's, I have had it, and now I don't. And so that absence feels like the only thing in the world. Again, really a surge of empathy because I think part of The human condition is that once you've experienced something, of course, you just want more of it. But you don't ever want to be thinking about Viserys. More to the point with John's, you know, very sincere entreaties that he doesn't want the crown, doesn't Mm -hmm. want to be king, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, they're in a bit of a pickle because Danny's insistence is that he not tell anybody about his parentage. At the same time, surely there's an expectation that these two would wed. They like each other. They're walking around. They're fucking. Their advisors have been like, they should get together even before they knew about what the Mm -hmm. lineage was. John could, in a meeting, (laughs) announce to everyone, also, I'm probably going to marry Daenerys and be the king consort, but like, I'm not going to run stuff. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't want to be the ruler. Mm -hmm. She's going to be the ruler. I'm just going to be the guy. He could say some version of that. And he doesn't. We'll get to this when we talk about Varys and Tyrion later, but Tyrion, in essence, makes that pitch. And Varys says flat out, she wouldn't want that. Which I wonder if on some level John senses that, but also I think it's almost 
that's 10 steps away from where he's right. thinking because he's just incest might be normal for Targaryens. You know, Danny's parents were brother and sister. She grew up thinking she would marry Viserys mm-hmm. before her life changed so drastically. She's fine with it. It's not normal to John, right. and it's not something he's comfortable with. And so he's fighting his own nature now. There's this dissonance where rationally he thinks that he knows that this is wrong, but he desires her. He wants her. He loves her. Very I fa- tough. I found the next, the exchange about keeping this secret pretty mm-hmm. ironic. So Danny's like, you can't tell anyone. John says, you are my queen. I don't know what else I can say. You can say nothing to anyone ever. Never tell them who you really are. And she tells him to swear Sam and Bran to secrecy and implores him to understand that he won't be able to control what this information does to people. Correct. Which is absolutely correct. And he says, well, I got to tell Sansa and Arya, they're my family. And she says, again, very cannily, Sansa will want you on the throne and that will destroy us and be my death, probably. She doesn't say that, but the implication is clear. Again, correct. Yeah, correct. I owe them the truth, John says. Even if the truth destroys us, it won't. It will. I've never begged for anything, but I'm begging you, don't do this, please. That is brutal. And I will say that I immediately thought of Ned. Mm-hmm. because yep. Danny is asking him to not necessarily lie, but just not tell people a thing, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And John, who is so influenced by Ned in every single way, mm-hmm. down to his moral code, mm-hmm. says, he can't. I can't do it. Right. Meanwhile, what is the only reason that John is alive right now and standing in this room? Mm-hmm. It's that Ned kept a secret for his entire life. Mm-hmm. It's just very ironic. These two bookends. Yeah. I mean, that's in many ways one of the most compelling bits of dramatic tension in the story is that John idolizes Ned and follows that North Star, but also feels betrayed by the decision that Ned made, even though that decision, as Sam told him, kept him alive. I think that the the other part of this is that ultimately, as sound as her logic is from her perspective, it's not right for Danny to ask John to hide the truth of who he is. It's not right. And he has to feel that way about it. Like, if you love me and you supported me, you'd want me to be able to say out loud who I am. You know, the question of identity and family is so central to the story. And to say, keep the truth of who you are a secret, that's really, really a tough ask. And, And I think if she made one mistake, it's that. Yes. In this episode. The thing is, while I feel that, It is wrong for her to ask that. This was a powerful scene, one of the better scenes in the episode. I I also keenly felt agony on her behalf. Oh, yeah. Literally for someone so proud and powerful to say, I'm begging you. Yes, it is crushing to see Danny in that place. But I want to say it's important to note that that was not weakness. Right. That was tragedy. Yeah. Tragedy. A strong woman who has overcome so much in her life, achieved so much, helped so many other people, been the one other people come to and beg, having to beg a man who she feels now has her fate, her future in his hands because the world says that that's the way it's supposed to be is a really gutting reminder of what the realm, what the nature of politics and social norms and human interactions has done to Danny yeah. and what she fears that it could do to her in the future. And so, as is so often the case with Danny, there's empathy mixed with a little bit of fear. This scene really shows the sides of Danny, that duality of yeah. who she is and of where ultimately it seems like her arc is heading. 
When John says, you are my queen, nothing will change that. And they are my family. We can live together. Her face changes completely. And she says, we can. I just told you how. It's a threat almost. And that's a little bit scary as justified as it is. Yeah, I again find myself wishing that she had Jorah and then Missandei for longer because really the move here is this is going to get out. So let's get out in front of it. Like if she could trust Varys and Tyrion, if Tyrion wasn't on an epic losing streak and Varys <laughs> wasn't giving off treason vibes, maybe she'd bring them in and go, here's the situation with John. Great claim, blah, 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 blah. We're going to spin this as the Targaryens are back. It's a power couple. Mm-hmm. John is going to state very publicly that I am going to take the lead in all matters in the governance, but we're going to be married and House Targaryen is as strong as ever and we'll get out in front of all this stuff. Right. Put out a united front. If she made a mistake in this episode, it's the fact that she's asking him to do something which he would never be able to do. Right. That's contrary to his nature. That's an interesting thought experiment. She's never going to do that both because she doesn't trust the people around her enough and because she's been burned too many times by people in her past. She doesn't have a reason to trust people, actually, which is part of the the ultimate tragedy of her storyline. Because we were just talking about this need for John to share with his family who he really is. Let's talk about John and Sansa and Arya and Bran for a moment before we get back to Danny and the rest of Danny's arc. After the war council, Arya pulls a we need to talk and yeah. they go, the four of them, in front of the godswood. This the symbol. Yep. The weirwood tree, the symbol of northern identity. Mm-hmm. Perfect place. Couldn't be a more perfect place for this conversation other than heading back down to the crypts, which are presumably full of skeletons. <laughs> We don't trust your queen, Arya says. And it's put as bluntly as it can be. Credit to Arya, Sansa, and obviously Bran. They don't really fuck around. No. They're pretty efficient. They get right to the point. Get to the friggin' point. (laughs) And we as viewers, this is one of the interesting things about where the story is. We root for Danny, but we are programmed fully the same way that Jon is. We want to align with Arya. We want to align with Sansa. We want to be on their side. And so the fact that they feel this way makes us question our pro Danny leanings, which is, again, actually a pretty compelling balancing act to be attempting yes. to dance through these final few episodes. I 100% agree with you. So they have this conversation, and John really shows some growth yeah. here in a way that is, I thought was really earned. And unexpected. You mean like he got taller after a couple more jokes about his height? Or do you, do you mean emotional growth? So terrible. I can't believe uh, we got multiple, multiple what is jokes happening? about his size again. Multiple. Anyway, John, he lets them know that he is in love with Danny, and he doesn't want to. He wants her to be queen. He trusts okay. her. And another interesting part of this was Arya breaking with Sansa on giving credit to Danny for coming through for the North. Mm-hmm. Just being like, we couldn't have done it without her. Right. You did the right thing when you that kneeled. John did the right thing. You yeah. did the right thing, John, when you kneeled. Something that Sansa just absolutely was against. Against, 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 against. And I thought that was actually really important. Mm-hmm. You'd have to be almost insanely blind to not credit her with saving everyone's ass. Yeah. Yes, she didn't strike the kill blow. But those dragons did a lot of damage. The Unsullied held the gate when everybody needed to retreat. The Dothraki, I mean, they didn't do anything, but whatever. (laughs) But her dragons did a lot of damage and they really, really helped the effort. They kept the Night King off balance when he could have just strafed them at will. 
And it was really important that they gave her that respect. But then Arya says, we're family, the four of us, the last of the Starks. And despite the fact that she is very soon going to leave on what we assume to be a mission of vengeance, cross those last names off her list, that's an ominous line. Very. First of all, are we going to ever see all these people together again? It feels like we might not, which is absolutely heartbreaking. And could this be the end of the Stark line proper? It also feels like that could be possible. It really does. The possibility of John living a life of hermitage and exile. exile. Arya dead or off on her own pursuing a nomadic existence. Certainly not prone to do marriage in a way that would foster the Stark line and allow it to continue. Our understanding from book canon is that Bran cannot have children. Right. And that would leave Sansa. Now, there's no reason to think that Sansa as the Lady of Winterfell would not, hopefully for love, marry one day. But this was just so ominous, the framing here. And more than that, it made the ensuing decision to cut away from the reveal of who Jon is to Sansa and Arya, rather than show it to us. I don't want to use this word lightly, but I really mean it in this case. Unforgivable. It was heartbreaking. I will never get over this. This information is the central dramatic force the central through line of this entire story, right. books in the show. And its revelation was so important that that's the question that George asked the showrunners when right. they were pitching right. him on, on adapting the story. It's right. important. And the fact that we were not able to see what that information, the effect that information has on John's siblings is, it is a choice for sure. It felt like, and who knows what the logic is. Maybe they didn't get a good take. Maybe they just want the decisions that the characters make after the fact to be surprises to us, but that's not really the way Game of Thrones has been told. It's been where they are in that room, where those interesting conversations are happening so that we understand the machinations and the nature of how people think about power and identity and their own pursuits. It felt like, well, we've had a lot of key scenes now built around this reveal, and maybe we've run out of ways to say it. I just can't accept that. I I think about one of the most iconic moments from last season, Olena's tell Cersei, I want her to know it was me. Why was that so powerful? Because you're paying off uh-huh. a long running, not only a mystery, but a long running piece of dramatic tension. Yes. And you want it to pay off. And that's the thing is that even though we've gotten forms of payoffs, right. certainly we found out when we did our top 25 moments countdown heading into season eight, John's parentage reveal in the Tower of Joy in the season six finale Winds of Winter was our number one moment yes. because that's how elemental this is to the story. When Sam told John, when John told Danny, when Bran and Sam pieced together that there had been an annulment in a marriage and that John was the true born heir, all of those scenes had power. None of them in any way diminished the need for us to see how Sansa and Arya respond to this because... What is one of the reasons that this matters so much to the story? It's not just because of John's claim. It's because, again, to return to that idea of central themes, the question of identity, of family, of how mm-hmm. John's family, how the North would accept him, whether they would, has always been so paramount. And especially as other characters are positioning him as this unique force in the world, right. we have to be able to see how, because of who John is, the fabric and the fiber of his character, he would be able to transcend the instinct to say, oh my God, right. Rhaegar Targaryen's son. No, right? People love him and they want to support him. 
the duality of who he is, the halves of his identity, required navigating the matter with the people who mean the most to him in the world. We deserve to see that. Instead, we got this. You're my brother from Arya. Not my half-brother or my bastard brother, my brother. And then John agonized because he knows that this is the moment, looks over to Bran, who says, here's our theme again, it's your choice. And of course, it is. As Danny told him, it's your choice. Make this one, but John can only make one. And we all knew that this was going to be what John did because he can't lie. You know, as he said in the Dragon Pit in the season seven finale, when enough people make false promises, words stop meaning anything. Then there are no more answers, only better and better lies. Telling the truth is who John is. I mean, we can count on a hand the number of lies he's told. And it's been things like embedding with the wildlings per core and half hands order to ultimately perform a duty and fulfill his vow to the Night's Watch. This is why it's not just the lack of a reaction. It's the fact that John doesn't even really tell them. So he says, I need to tell you something. Well, you have to swear you'll never tell another soul. And as you noted to me in the... As we watch this, what a missed opportunity to bring back Promise Me. I can't believe it. How did they not do Promise Me? How? His sisters push back and he says, because we're family and we know where his heart is. They're his family. He's a Stark no matter what. And we can only deduce based on their ensuing actions what will happen. And he turns to Brandy and he says, tell them. And then we cut away. He is not even the one to say it. To return to the Olena example is as if Olena sitting there in her defeat called a page into the room and said, all right, tell Jamie what I did. Yeah. And then she drinks the poison and then we cut away. Like, it would have been an incredibly powerful moment and we didn't get to see it. It's devastating. And then John didn't even say it. And But we don't even get to see how he looks and squirms and feels as he's not saying yes, it. Yes, like, that, that, that is such a great point. That would have spoken volumes over whatever it says in the script, yes. whatever the dialogue is. Absolutely. And, you know, I found myself thinking about that line from Sansa in episode three that at the time felt like a very deliberate mission statement for the rest mm-hmm. of season eight. It's the most heroic thing we can do. She says this to Tyrion down in the crypts. Look the truth in the face. But they didn't. You know, this is the truth for John, as painful as it is. And we didn't get to see him doing it. We didn't get to see how hard it was for him to watch them hear this, what questions they asked, what they said in turn. We don't get to see Arya and Sansa say goodbye to each other after these strides that they have taken in their relationship. John cannot, to return to your point about Ned, do what Ned did and live the way Ned did and bury something that deep inside and never speak of it. He has to live openly because it's all he knows. And it goes back to the idea that Tyrion said to him in the first episode of the show, never forget what you are. The rest of the world will not. The first step has to be telling the world what you are, saying it out loud so that then you can find the courage to own it. You can't find that courage if you're hiding it. And so John saying this was the right thing. I'm proud of him. Right. Except we didn't get to see him do it. And as you noted, he didn't do it. It's this absolutely (laughs) massive seismic moment for his character. It's this culmination of so much of the doubt and insecurity about who he is and his place in the world and his family and this quest for a sense of belonging. And we don't get to see it. Brutal. It's crushing. (laughs) Love Game of Thrones. (laughs) (laughs) And now a quick break for a word from our sponsors. Today's episode of Binge Mode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Hiring used to be hard. Mm-hmm. Multiple job sites. Whoa. Stacks of resumes. Oh, my God. A confusing review process. What is going on? But today, hiring can be easy. And you only have to go one place to get it done. ZipRecruiter.com slash binge. 
ZipRecruiter sends your job to more than 100 of the web's leading job boards. Oh, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates. So you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. Wow. Wow. Right now, our listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free. Oh! At this exclusive web address. Where? ZipRecruiter.com slash binge. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash B-I-N-G-E. ZipRecruiter.com slash binge. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Today's binge mode is also brought to you by RevTown. When we binge, we got to be comfortable. Have to be. It's imperative. Got to be. That's why we're excited to introduce binge-worthy jeans. Yes. From our friends at RevTown. You probably come home and change into shorts or sweats before putting on your favorite show. Am I right? Mm Mm-hmm. You are. Well, these jeans are about to change everything. RevTown jeans were created by ex-Under Armour guys who use innovative fabric and Italian milled denim to make the most comfortable pair of jeans you'll ever wear. When we asked how they do it, they told us that their jeans are made from a proprietary fabric that's strong. It's a little bit of stretch. It's just like the fabric used to make football uniforms and workout clothes. Now in your jeans. Wow. Which means... Oh, yeah. You can go from work to binging. Oh, my God without a wardrobe change. Hey, why don't you head over to www.revtownusa.com slash binge mode to pick up a pair and start binging. Don't mind if I do. The jeans cost a fraction of the price of designer brands. Revtown currently offers men's jeans and have their first women's line on the way this fall. And bonus, Revtown now ships internationally so you can get them delivered to your doorstep no matter where you live. Wow. RevTown is giving a few of our listeners some free jeans. So head to www.revtownusa.com slash binge mode to sign up. That's www.revtownusa.com slash binge mode. And now, back to binge mode. Let's get back to Danny. Yeah. Boys, there are a lot to talk about with Danny and Cersei and Euron. And we got to start with... What happens to Rhaegal, what happens out on the open seas, and the strategic discussions and decisions, or lack thereof, that lead to that moment. So we get another Winterfell War Council where we find out, actually, Danny didn't lose that many people. Did I hallucinate, or on the inside the episode after episode three, did they say the end of the Dothraki? They said the end. What is essentially the end was the phrasing. And so now we find out that basically they have half the army is still intact. Half. Which is a lot better than what it looked like. We spent so much time last week talking about the need for reinforcements. Would they bring in Daria on the Second right. Sons? Would they call Yara over? Would they pardon the Glovers, et cetera, et cetera, because it seemed impossible that they would have enough people to take on Cersei. But what ultimately is the driving force right now? Is it logic? No. It's speed. It's speed. Had to get Danny on those boats Gotta in get her this on the boat. episode. And the only way they could do that was to give her enough men to justify it. So during this meeting... They talk about, you know, the strength of the Targaryen army and the positioning of the Lannister army. Mentioning, specifically. Specifically. You're on Greyjoy, his fleet, out there. And then Varys places the little kraken, little kraken stone 
on the map. Then Danny splits her forces again as they head south. Some go on the boats, the kind of like the high leadership. And then John with the northern levies is taking the King's Road down. Why? No reason given. Just to get there faster. And to separate John and Danny so that she's more alone, positioned to act rashly ultimately. This all stems back to the decision post season six when Danny, when the last scene of season six was Danny with this massive fleet sailing towards Westeros. And they made the decision there and then that she was too strong. There would be no drama because she would just wipe the table with Cersei and you had to bring her down. And this is just a continuation of that. Two dragons, still too many. So, Danny is flying without a care in the world towards Dragonstone. Yara's fleet taking a leisurely course towards the seat of Targaryen power for so many years. Nobody, I guess, has their radar up wondering if there are enemies in the air, despite the fact that you're like less than a day's sail from King's Landing and you know that Euron is in the area. I can't get over that part of it. Because they should be expecting— It's right there. That Euron, to- that Euron and Cersei took Dragonstone. Right. That they are there on the sand on the shores waiting for them. But at a minimum, they should be expecting, given the proximity of Dragonstone to King's Landing, the threat of an ambush, the threat of attack. Yeah. Yeah. Like, of course. So how are they not prepared for that? Also, Danny's on a dragon. She's in the air. But she doesn't see. I mean, that was tough. Listen, not to get into, like, why didn't Rickon juke again? <laughs> but, it, you know, it just— You're in the sky. The sea is flat. Nowhere to hide. Yes, they had like a mountain or whatever that Euron emerged from behind. But he could see the dragons. Yeah, if he could see the dragons to shoot at it, the dragons could see him. That's how sight and physics and light works. (laughs) Anyway, Euron lands basically three out of three shots. One to the abdomen, which probably would have killed Rhaegal in time. Another one that nicked the wing his already injured wing, Mm -hmm. and then one through the neck that was the kill blow. The range had to be a mile and a half, right? He's on a boat also. Right. A boat. Shooting at a flying target that's, I don't know, a mile to a mile and a half away. Right. And hit it with his first three shots. So this is just a terrible way to lose Rhaegal. Now, I think we all worried that one or both of the remaining dragons would die. Well, it was necessary because it would be too easy if you had to. Right. Again, it's not an indefensible storytelling choice. It's, it's right. very sad, but it's not right. an indefensible storytelling choice to kill Rhaegal. The nature of it, the decisions the characters are making and the way they're acting to allow for this to happen, to facilitate this moment, just raises so many questions. Mm-hmm. In the inside of the episode, they say that Danny quote, kind of forgot about the Iron Fleet and Euron's forces. It's very tough. The forces are mentioned directly to her and to everyone in that room in... The prior scene. Yeah. So if that's true, if Danny actually forgot about Euron and the Iron Fleet, if her advisors and everyone with her forgot, they're idiots. It does not seem possible that that is true. That's not how Danny is. She's methodical and detail oriented, always thinking about the next step and what might be around the corner. Euron. Yeah. A walking dick joke. <laughs> Really, legitimately, that's what he is. With an obsession with eyeliner, yeah. has slayed a dragon. Who else have we seen kill a dragon? The fucking Night King. That's it. Now, this is another example of where if we understood the character a little bit better, we could accept this. Because actually, in the books, Euron is terrifying. Yeah. Absolutely terrifying. He's a very scary man. And he possesses Dragonbinder, the Hellhorn, which claims can bind a dragon to his will. But again, that distinction is notable. Like, in the books, he wants to try to use a dragon. Take 
a dragon. Make it a source of his strength. Now we're at the point in the story where because of how few minutes we have left, it's all just about evening the odds and getting to where we need to be. And so a dragon introduced into the story as a source of unrivaled magic, unrivaled strength, a weapon beyond equal. These are— Is taken down like that. These are the creatures that brought magic back into the world. A huge theme of the story. It's wild. Yeah. We also get a reversion to a season one trick, which is let's knock out Tyrion so we don't have to see how the battle plays out. Right, right, right. Now, in season one, Battle of the Grand Fork, they didn't have the money, they the budget. Didn't have it. Straight up didn't have it. To film the battle. Yeah. And that is not where we are with Game of Thrones anymore. So at this point, the only result of that was that we were left asking all these questions about the logic of what is had unfolded. How... Did Euron sneak up on them in the first place? How did he land those three shots? Why doesn't Danny turn around and roast his fleet? She's staring him down, and then she has to pull Drogon out of the way as they unleash multiple yeah. shots from bigger crossbow. But fly back around. Or, roast them from the back. Or do what Aegon did when he took out Harrenhal. Fly straight up. Scorpions don't bank straight up in the right. air and then come straight down on the fleet. Right. They then use the crossbows on the fleet. We see the fleet in tatters after Tyrion and Varys and Grey Worm wash up on shore. How did those people get there alive? Did Euron's fleet just decide not to pursue, just decide not to kill them? Why? How did they capture Masandi? We hear Grey Worm tell her to go get in the skiff. Who took her? How did that happen? We don't no. And so we're left just having to say, hey, you know what? Like, wow, great payoff on Varys is saying, storms come and go, the big fish eat the little fish, and I keep on paddling. Because he did. He paddled all the way to shore. We just don't know how. It's, it's very tough. Add to that Missandei's death, which, leaving aside the fact that it stretches credulity that how did they get her? Why did they not get anybody else? She's the only one. What happened there? There's also the fact that only woman of color on the show. Yeah. After the Dothraki have been basically eliminated from the program. Mm-hmm. And not only that, but her death serves one purpose, to make Danny angry. And to make Grey Worm yes. angry, which then, in addition to what the point you just raised about killing the only woman of color on the show, you then get into the fridging yeah. conversation and using a female character's death to motivate a man. And that's unfortunate. Yep. Quite unfortunate. And you add to that the impact on Danny's decision making mm-hmm. tree. Missandei was somebody that she could get real, unvarnished opinion from, and she could trust it. Yes. Now, in this sense, those critiques are very real. Very real. Yeah. From a purely in the world of the story narrative perspective, this death is going to have the biggest impact on Danny, mm-hmm. And so if in the limited time they need to push her to becoming the queen of the ashes, this was what they had to do. It's really fascinating to consider the context of these moments because a lot of people left the Battle of Winterfell saying, how did Masande and Grey Worm yeah. live? Now it's clear why they needed her. Exactly. Exactly. The bond that Masande and Danny shared was special. And... There's this key moment in season five after Grey Worm is wounded, Jorah's in exile at this point, Barristan has been killed, and Danny asks Masande for advice on what to do. And after Masande gets over her initial, well, I'm not really, why would you want my advice? And Danny says, because I trust you, right? I believe in you. 
She says, I can only tell you what I've seen, Your Grace. I've seen you listen to your counselors. I've seen you lean on their experience when your own was lacking and weigh the choices they put before you. And I have seen you ignore your counselors because that was a better choice, Mm -hmm. one that only you could see. In this moment, when Cersei asked Masande for her last words, what does Masande shout? Dracaris. A clear message to Danny, returning to that idea from season five. What's the thing that only you can see? The problem is... That's the path to becoming the queen of the ashes, to burning it all down. And as Danny walks away and the camera zooms in on her face, again, we have to see these emotions play out on her face because there's not enough time for conversations about it. But it does play out on her face quite effectively. That expression says it all. She's made up her mind in that moment. And this whole thing going there in the first place because Tyrion convinced her to, which we'll talk about more in a a minute— She's not listening to these people anymore because— Why should she? Exactly, because they're not leading her to anything but more failure and tension. You know, Tyrion convinced her to stand on the sand in front of numerous bigger crossbows. Yes. Her, Tyrion, Varys, Greyworm, Drogon sitting there on the sand within range of those bolts to ask Cersei one more time to be reasonable. That is— And to (laughs) once again trot out this chestnut— you love your children, and that's—who cares if she loves her kids? Honestly, who cares about it? That appeal has not worked. And honestly, the thing that I don't like about it is not only that the appeal hasn't worked. It's literally like you go into the show Bible and go, like, what is the log line for this character? Cersei Lannister, conniving, ruthless— prone to fits of rage, loves her children. Mm -hmm. It's like, so that's what we're just going to say. Like, we've reduced it to, like, you love your children. She is a mass murderer many (laughs) times over. Yes. And people are still like, yeah, but she loves her kids. Come on. So with that in mind, are you surprised that Cersei does not just kill them all? Yes, that's what Cersei would do. What is the logic for her not? Simply that she's setting up whatever befalls her, She's setting up the people to turn against Danny. She's ensuring that Danny attacks the Red Keep, kills the innocents, that she does become, in, in their mind, quote, the Mad Queen. Cersei is absolutely ruthless, and she is a schemer. Mm-hmm. But not in the way Tywin was. Tywin spun these very complex webs until before his victims knew it, they were just trapped. Mm-hmm. The way Cersei tricks people is she escalates to a level of violence that her opponents are not ready for before they know that that's what it's about. She blew up yes, the set. That's she it. doesn't care that's about not an a, honorable parlay. No, no, that's not, a, that's not a trap. We're not luring people in this complex web of schemes to get them all in one place. No, you take advantage of a situation and then you just hit it with extreme force. That's Cersei Lannister. She's a schemer, yes, but it's about hyper-violence right away when she sees an opportunity that other people miss. And that was an opportunity to wipe out the enemy. Yeah. And she didn't take it. Baffling. Yeah. Cersei, certainly a mad queen. The show clearly positioning Danny to become a mad queen. Mm-hmm. Obviously charged language there. And as our pal Joanna Robinson pointed out on Twitter, you're going to call Danny the mad queen. You got to call Stannis the mad king. Yeah. He certainly burned him. I mean, I'm ready to, I'm going to refute the mad king I am standing for Danny right now, and I'm ready to defend her. There's a lot to parse here. Yeah, Let's, yeah. before we talk about the charge language and Danny's actual endgame, let's talk about the people around her. Right. So, Varys and Tyrion have several conversations over the course of this episode that point an ominous direction for Danny. During the Winterfell War Council, Varys is very adamant that 
we must not attack King's Landing. We don't want to kill innocents, be queen of the ashes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Don't do it. Tyrion says, in an attempt to buttress Varys's point and steer a more middle path, says, once people see that Cersei is the only enemy, her reign is over. They convince her again to try a more conservative tact, right? Mm -hmm. Doing this ultimately will position her to make the desperate, irreparable choice that we expect that she will make. Mm -hmm. And then there's the conversation in the boat that is full-on treason time, right? This is dipping the toe into treason waters, the second conversation. The, is the, the second one is full treason. <laughs> Varys notes, hey, John has a better claim. Tyrion, quite fairly, points out he doesn't want it. Mm-hmm. And Varys says, who cares? Doesn't matter. Yep. Which is absolutely right. People are drawn to him. Wildlings, Northmen, he's a war hero. All of this, by the way, true about Danny. if you take out the Northmen and wildlings. Right, sub that for any of the other groups of people who she won to her side. Tyrion suggests unity. Let's get them wed, and Varys has— Somewhere Davos is like, motherfucker, I've been saying saying that that. for episodes. It's it's so obvious. Now, Varys (laughs) has two objections that are crazy. So one, incest. John grew up in the North where this is not normal, so he will not go for this. And then number two— Quote, you know our queen better than I do. Do you think she wants to share the throne? She does not like to have authority questioned. Mm. Which, as Tyrion notes, describes basically every ruler, including John, got himself killed by insisting he had to bring the wildling south, right? Mm-hmm. He was right, but it was a very divisive decision, yeah. and he paid with his life. Sansa has constantly challenged him to the point where he said last season, you're undermining me. Mm-hmm. Including in this episode when she challenged him again, John does what he thinks is right, but he also does what he believes. And so then Varys follows up with, I worry about her state of mind. Here's my issue with Varys on the surface level and then this kind of plot turn in general. Varys, not that long ago when he was getting Tyrion out of his little poo box that crossed the sea was saying, (laughs) what if I told you Mm -hmm. there was a ruler adored by millions with an army, a fleet, and the right Family name. Uh-huh. And Tyrion was like, uh, yeah, I'd like to meet him. What if it's a her? Now, all of a sudden, he's like, I don't know. She's uh, kind of going off the reservation. Now, why is she going off the reservation? What does that mean? All Danny has done for two seasons is everything Varys and Tyrion have told her to do. Don't be queen of the ashes. Mm-hmm. Don't attack King's Landing right now. In fact, let's split our forces so we can do this whole Casterly Rock thing that's going to go disastrously haywire. We have to convince Cersei about the threat, so let's do this kidnapping mission. And then, actually, now the kidnapping the white mission needs to be rescued. Let's go north instead of south. All these things she has done because they have asked her to do it. I think you can— Tyrion tried to stop her from going beyond the wall. She did that for Jon. Right. And that saved everybody's life, by the way. She's not exclusively listening to their advice. It's when things go poorly that she's listening to their advice. And that's my point. (laughs) Yeah. She's done what they've wanted. By and large, listen, burning Dickon, Tarly, I think she went too far there, fine. But now it's going sideways and they're saying, well, I don't know, the way she's reacting to these setbacks is kind of makes me wonder about her state of mind. Her state of mind is, you guys have failed her over and over again. Right. She's done everything you've asked and you put her in this situation. Why don't you own it a little bit? I think that two things are true at once yeah. here. I believe that the show and the books have effectively from almost the beginning yes. set up this I think so too. turn for I Danny think you're right. at the end. Like I really do. 
we're going to go through some of the reasons why later, and I think we will do it in much more detail in the next two weeks if that's what ends up happening. Things like screaming at the Spice King and Karth about burning cities to the ground. Now, obviously, Crispy Kraz was a monster and deserved to die, but that was an insight into how Danny thought about pursuing justice and the things that she wants. Crucifying all the masters. You know, Jorah had to talk her out of going back to Yunkai to round everybody up and treat them like beasts. Burning a master down in the catacombs, burning all of the calls, burning the Tarleys, et cetera, et cetera. The point is, this has always been a concern. So Varys was fine with it before, but he isn't now. What changed? That's the part. While I think that Varys' actions are very true to his ruler-hopping nature yeah. and this farce of serving the realm when really it's just about the whim of the moment and who yeah. he thinks he can control. Yes, thank you. Like, it's about time we call Varys out on his bullshit. Yeah, you know, she— has in this current swath of the story ultimately been putting her own agenda on hold to pursue something selfless at great cost. And so the fact that this is the moment where people really begin to question her, that part is a little bit of a harder sell. And again, I think that's where the question of pacing and time comes into play because now we're at a moment in the story where Danny has to do something unforgivable. She has to do something utterly reprehensible for John and the viewers to accept this. That's where we are with it. The issue I have with this plot turn, and again, I think you're right. They've set it up from the beginning. I think it would be an absolutely devastating plot turn if it was played out in a Shakespearean manner, a tragedy. Everybody tried their best, made the wrong decisions at the wrong time, and this is what happened despite everyone's best intentions, right? The thing I worry about is because of the pacing and the speed, what we're going to get is this incredibly powerful, talented, and resilient queen who is gaslit by her advisors into Mm -hmm. believing that she's crazy, Mm -hmm. then blows a gasket because everybody's giving her the wrong advice and she's like, fine, I'm going to do it myself, does the thing that she should have done a while ago, and now everybody blames her for it, and that's her downfall. Right. And also they like the man better. That gets into the second conversation that Varys and Tyrion have, which we'll go through quickly here because there's a lot but it all sort of boils down to the same thing which is Varys directly saying after Masande is taken and they have another war council and Varys challenges Danny directly and says this is a mistake he cites the conversation that they had in season seven where he promised her that if he ever had a problem with her he would tell her to her face obviously a little late for that because he's already been plotting a right. coup behind her back Tens of thousands of innocents will die, he tells her. These are the people you came here to protect. I beg you, your grace, do not destroy the city you came to save. Do not become what you have always struggled to defeat. That is actually a fair point, one that Danny has listened to before. She said she didn't want to be Queen of the Ashes, and she doesn't. But her initial reply there is very telling in terms of how they're setting up the endgame. Do you believe we're here for a reason, Lord Varys? I'm here to free the world from tyrants. That is my destiny, and I will serve it no matter the cost. But what choices will Danny make in pursuit of fulfilling that destiny? And what has she been driven to yeah. by the loss and the tragedy and the poor counsel? At what point will her ambition to realize that destiny blind her to the good intentions that got her this far and that made her so special and made her somebody that people rooted for? That idea is something that Tyrion and Varys return to when they're speaking in private in the Dragonstone throne room. Varys says, I've served tyrants most of my life. They all talk about destiny. And Tyrion says... She's a girl who walked into a fire with three stones and walked out with three dragons. How could she not believe in destiny? Vera says perhaps that's the problem. Her life has convinced her 
that she was sent here to save us all. And Tyrion says, how do you know she wasn't? So this is a really interesting thought mm-hmm. experiment on both sides. Because on the one hand, there's that very George R. R. Martin, yeah. Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, quintessential fantasy idea about the one who doesn't believe, doesn't seek it, doesn't believe that they're worthy being the one who actually deserves it. And in that respect, John really actually is, right. in the rules of this story, the better choice. As is so often the case, it's about all the things happening around it and how people are discussing that that are problematic. To Tyrion's point, what has Danny done to dissuade anyone from thinking that she's that person right. right now? She has pursued justice, albeit often at the expense of mercy, and she has pursued freedom. Problem is that she has done so with an increasing rigidity that suddenly people have lost the ability to stomach. And so Vera says of John as an alternative, he's temperate and measured. And then he brings up the fact that he's a man. What did you think about this? I mean, I think it's a thing that certainly would be argued in this world and has been if, you know, the history of Westeros is that there have been various attempts to have a queen be the high ruler of Westeros and they've all ended in civil war. Mm -hmm. So it makes sense that somebody would mention this. But again, I just worry that the speed papers over the kind of depth and real subtlety required to have this kind of thematic choice play out in a way that's affecting. Otherwise, you've got these guys, they're gaslighting their boss, and they're saying, let's put her husband on the throne because guys like him. Right. It's not an accident that in this episode we got a brief snippet of and ultimately allusion to the iconic Tyrion Varys, power resides where men believe it resides speech from season two. This is a snippet that we get from Tyrion. He's actually saying it to Bronn. We're supposed to be thinking about a moment in time when we trusted Tyrion and Varys to see the picture, to see the board, to think in a way that other people weren't. That's a great point. And here, we're saying, when Varys puts it as bluntly as he can, you know, I've spoken as honestly as I can. Each of us has a choice to make. I pray we choose wisely. Is Tyrion so loyal to Danny that if she does commit an atrocity, he'll still stay by her side? What would have to happen now to sway him? Will Danny execute Varys when she finds out that he's pursuing treason? Will that sway Tyrion? All of these things have to happen so, so yeah. quickly. Now, one other tiny thing that I want to mention with Varys and Tyrion before we move on is the brand foreshadowing in terms of where the story is ultimately heading. When Bran and Tyrion were speaking at the feast at Winterfell, Tyrion said, you know our history better than anyone. That will be useful as Lord of Winterfell. And Bran says, you know, he's not Lord of Winterfell. On and on they go. You don't want it? I don't really want anymore, Bran says. Tyrion says, I envy you. And Bran says, you shouldn't envy me. Mostly I live in the past. This seems like really clear endgame foreshadowing. Two reasons. One, Bran knowing history, which they will need to preserve and better the realm should the realm exist in any capacity at the end of the last war. And two, that idea of not wanting, because that's something that we hear Tyrion and Varys discuss when they're talking about John and what makes him an ideal ruler. He doesn't want it. Have you considered the best ruler maybe the one who doesn't want to rule, Varys says to Tyrion about John. Well, who else doesn't want? Bran. He just said it. Now, obvious issues with him having renounced not only his stake to a lordship, but basically his humanity. So how they would potentially bridge that divide in two episodes, I candidly have no idea. But it seems like that exchange about Bran not wanting in an episode where the idea of someone who doesn't want being an ideal ruler comes up so often is deliberate. You know, the thing that I keep thinking of is this seems like the death of breaking the wheel. Yes. Because 
if the thing that's important about Bran, one of the things, is that he understands their history better than anyone, the history of Westeros is not great. Danny's entire mission is let's escape that history. Mm-hmm. Let's break with the past and let's do something different free from tyrants. So basically to have Bran, it's a vote for status quo, essentially. Well, I guess that a way against to combat that would be saying we're going to use all those lessons. We're going to tap into that memory to avoid those mistakes and try to build something better. But I'm glad you mentioned breaking the wheel because mm-hmm. I think that that is one of the ways that the show has to sell a Danny heel turn here, which is she's actually forgotten about breaking the wheel. Right. And that's part of the problem. That was part of the reason that she seemed like the worthy choice for right. so long. And now it's just about her precious. You know, the Iron yeah. Throne is her ring of power and she's pursuing it above all else. So when Cersei says, keep the gates open, if she wants to take the castle, she'll have to murder thousands of innocent people first. It feels like that's exactly where this is heading, especially after mm-hmm. what happened to Masande and Masande's endorsement via the word Dracarys. And also if you factor in everything that Amelia Clark has said about how she feels about the end of the show. So on the one hand, this has in many ways been set up for quite some time. You know, many, many emblematic lines or moments you could point to, something like Danny saying in Marine, they can live in my new world or they can die in their old one. Her saying when Barristan pushed for mercy, I will answer injustice with justice. Her saying in Karth, when my dragons are grown, we will take back what was stolen from me and destroy those who wronged me. We will lay waste to armies and burn cities to the ground. All the mass burnings, plenty of other examples on and on we could go. But is there time now to sell it as her giving into her worst impulses and losing sight of those higher pursuits, in other words, becoming the tyrant that she says she's trying to rid the world of without just making her basically the hysterical woman who snapped. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a very real danger with the way the pace is unfolding and with just the amount of runway we have. It feels very abrupt, even though you have to acknowledge that it's been set up the whole time. It feels quite abrupt. Yeah, I'm okay with, certainly with the John Danny rift and with Danny dying and Danny as a character who ultimately people did not trust with power. I'm actually okay with that because of all the setup. But to a point you made earlier, I don't want it to feel like she's evil or a villain. I want it to be that tragedy. I agree. And I'm really worried about that kind of like misogynistic lens framing because, you know, to be honest— Great. She storms the Red Keep and they slaughter everybody and they melt the castle. She's not doing anything that any other king of Westeros has not done. Right. They all did it. But somehow it's a problem now when Danny does it. Because she said she wouldn't and because they're holding her against her father's standard as the Mad King. I, and I think that's where I'm just like, come on. Like, we're holding her literally to an impossible standard right. at this point. Or her advisors certainly are. If she storms that city and innocents die— What lord of Westeros, what king of Westeros has not done the same thing? Which one of them? None. I would not be surprised if Cersei has stashes of wildfire waiting in the Red Keep so that when Danny unleashes a burst of dragon flame, the whole thing blows up and that reputation is secured for her. I think that the tragedy is that all Danny has wanted ever was to return home, to find family, to be this person who could bring goodness into the world and rid the world of these evil forces. And for her to finally have that in her grasp at last, a finger just reaching out that's that close and for it to melt away, it would be absolutely devastating. Yeah. You know, she wants to be good and she wants to make a difference, but she also wants to win that birthright. And it gets to an idea that George R. R. Martin talks about often 
a quote from an interview that he did with The Atlantic in 2011. He said, I've always agreed with William Faulkner. He said that the human heart in conflict with itself is the only thing worth writing about. Mm -hmm. I've always taken that as my guiding principle and the rest is just set dressing. That conflict in Danny's heart, the conflict in John's heart that seeing that conflict in Danny's heart could bring out, that is actually a really compelling end for the story if there is the time to explore it with nuance and care and in a way that honors every decision that the characters made to get to that point as opposed to feeling like it was quickly ushered into Mm -hmm. existence. And now another quick break for a word from our sponsors. Today's episode of Binge Mode is brought to you by Luminary. If you're a podcast and movie fan like we are, then you need to check out Luminary. They've just launched a bunch of great original shows. Oh, man. You can only find on their platform, including a spinoff of one of our very own Ringer shows, The Rewatchables. Called The Rewatchables 1999. The Rewatchables 1999 is the same format that you've come to know and love, but focused on the movies of the year 1999. We're also excited about a brand new podcast musical from John Cameron Mitchell called Anthem. It's an intimate storytelling experience. Created just for you, the listener. The Luminary app is free to download. And you can use it to listen to thousands of podcasts, including the ones you already love, like this one, Binge Mode, Hello, all enhanced by an easy-to-use interface with personalized content recommendations. Whether you're into movies, music, sports, comedy, or anything else, Luminary has the right show for you. So if you love podcasts, then you need to check out Luminary. Get your first two months of access to Luminary's premium content for free when you sign up at luminary.link slash binge mode. After that, it's only $7.99 per month. That's luminary.link slash binge mode for two months of free access. Luminary.link slash binge mode. Cancel any time. Terms apply. Today's binge mode is also brought to you by stamps.com. No one really has time to go to the post office. You're so busy. That's why you need stamps.com. Oh my God. Stamps.com brings all the amazing services of the U.S. Post Office right to your computer. Whether you're a small office sending invoices, Mm. an online seller shipping out products, or even a warehouse sending thousands of packages a day, Stamps.com can handle it all with ease. It's so easy. Just use your computer to print official U.S. postage 24-7 for any letter, any package, any class of mail, anywhere you want to send it. Wow. Then, once your mail's ready, just hand it to your mail carrier. Here you go. Or drop it in a mailbox. Wow. With stamps.com, you get five cents off every first class stamp and up to 40% off priority mail. Not to mention. Oh, mention it. It's a fraction. Oh, yeah. A fraction of the cost of those expensive postage meters. Mm-hmm. Right now, our listeners get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale. Wow. Without any long-term commitment. Just go to stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in binge. That's stamps.com, enter B-I-N-G-E, binge. And now, back to binge mode. Can we talk about John and Ghost? Yeah, let's talk about Ghost, Mal. Why don't you, I'm going to clear out. Okay, I'll go as quickly as I can. I'm going to ISO for you here. I know we're running long today, folks, so I'll try to keep this brief. But... (laughs) John's farewell to Ghost, which was not a farewell. He gave Ghost away to Torment, asked Torment to take Ghost to the north. He said, that's where he belongs to. A direwolf has no place in the south. Will you take him with you? He'll be happier up there. 
I am devastated by this. <laughs> a lot of people were. I, I'm not kidding when I say I've like broken down into tears multiple times this week thinking about this. And I'm, I want to be clear that this is not a bit, even though my love for ghosts right. is a recurring thing on this podcast. It's real despair over what feels like the absolute hand-waving of a crucial character and bond because the ghost-John relationship is absolutely elemental to who John is. And saying, as our dear friend Andy Greenwald did on The Watch this week, well, they were never really on the show. That's not a justification. That's actually the heart of the problem. Even based on what we got on the show, though, John should have interacted with Ghost directly, shown him love and care there, shown how agonizing it was. If he really felt like it was the right thing for Ghost to go be free in the North where he could roam, doesn't want to take him to a city, that would be impossible for me to stomach still because his direwolf belongs by his side. But at least he could have done it in a way that felt like he was agonizing over it the same way that we are. You know, they're bonded. John in the books is a warg. He Mm -hmm. has a warg bond with Ghost. But we get none of that. What we get is a farewell, heavy air quotes, that reminds us of all that we never got on the show and of how badly the show missed in this aspect of the story. One more aspect, by the way, of magic and fantasy where they didn't embrace that element of it. Yeah. So a lot of people are arguing, well, John sending Ghost away is John shedding his northern identity to embrace the Targaryen side of who he is and head south. Maybe. Maybe. But that's, to me, not in line with John's absolute sense of purpose and self coming from the North. He has said numerous times, this season, everything I did, I did for the North. Right. He's of the North for the North, and so is Ghost. Also, when Ghost is away from John, bad things happen. Like, for example, his assassination. Just as Catelyn knew that Rob needed to keep Grey Wind close to be safe, in the books, Melisandre warns John to keep ghosts near. Ghost is a protector. The direwolves are protectors. They're also companions. They're part of who these characters are. They share a mind and a soul. And I went on a little bit of a tweet thread about this the other day and contained myself by only selecting a few passages because there are so many. There's myriad that you could choose from. And just a few of the ones that I found myself thinking about the most were, you know, when John struggles with nightmares in the yeah. books, when he's haunted by Winterfell. The only way that he can go to sleep and find any sense of comfort and peace is to press his face into Ghost's fur. When Sam is so sad, John thinks Ghost, it was Ghost who knew what to do. And the direwolf goes and licks the tears off Sam's face. There's this one passage that I absolutely adore where John is thinking about identity and what it means to be isolated, to be different, because he's thinking about ghosts. His direwolf unlocks John's understanding about himself and about life, about who he is, because he's a reflection of John, and John is a reflection of him. And that's one that I actually want to read. It's when he's showing him Longclaw, the pommel. says, look, it's you. Quote, ghost sniffed at his carved stone likeness and tried to lick. John smiled. You're the one deserves an honor, he told the wolf. And suddenly he found himself, <sighs> I'm sad remembering how he'd found him that day in the late summer snow. They had been riding off with the other pups, but John had heard a noise and turned back, and there he was. White fur almost invisible against the drifts. He was all alone, he thought. Apart from the others in the litter, he was different, so they drove him out. That's the kind of thing that Ghost unlocks for John. That's how important he is to him. And they couldn't even have him pet him goodbye. It kills me. 
He whispers Ghost's name as he's dying in the books. It's the last thing he says. It bespeaks to like a fundamental misunderstanding of what the relationship is. What's one of the very first scenes in this story is the Stark children finding their direwolves. That's how George thought of the story, right? That's what came to him first. And to do them like that and to, oh, we thought it was much more powerful that way. Again, like, no, you didn't. Here's my thing. Right. Let's be 100% about it. Ghost is not in a lot of the seasons because there's a budget and they decided that whatever their CGI cap number is, they wanted to spend it on dragons, explosions, other stuff, and then direwolves down at the near the bottom. Yeah. Fair. If that's the decision you made, fair. But don't tell me that you then had John not pen him because that was more powerful. Just say, well, we had a CGI budget for the whatever and it was going to take X amount of time and it's just not a priority for us. Fine, it's not a priority for you. But don't tell me like, this was a powerful scene because it really was not as powerful. It was infuriating for a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, even on the show, they had a special relationship earlier, never as fully realized as in the books. But, you know, Ghost has fought wars for him. He fought a war for him last episode. He's the one who alerted him to the white in Mormont's office. He stood vigil by John's fucking corpse. And listen, I don't know. I'm not a CGI expert. I've never made a TV show. I've said this numerous times. I'll say it again. They have complained at least since season two about, well, you, you got to use a real wolf then to scale it up and it's hard to get the sun. There's been comments like that out there in the inside of the episodes about how hard it is, basically forecasting that this right. was going to happen. Again, I don't know anything about CG, but you've got like legitimately giants in this show. Yeah. <laughs> and dragons and stuff. Yeah. People ride the dragons. The giants pick little kids up and crush them. So I don't know. I just don't know. Fine. If that's the answer, it's too hard, fine. But it, doesn't seem like it should be. Here's all I'm holding on to. Yeah. Absent the fully realized representation of this really transformative bond, I'm holding on to the fact that the rest of that conversation with John and Tormund feels like endgame foreshadowing for John. Mm-hmm. An endgame that could bring them back together. Ghost and John together again. When sure. John says the direwolf has no place in the South, he's speaking whether he realizes it or not about himself as well. And when he tells Torment that ghosts will be happier up north, Torment says, so will you. Yeah. And when John says, this is farewell, and Torment says, you never know. You've got the north in you, the real north. All of this feels like it's heading toward, especially in light of everything we just outlined about Danny and the what seems like inevitable John-Danny divide that's going to define the end game of the show. John rejecting the throne after all of that rejecting the crown, rejecting that kind of life, and heading back north. There's really not enough time left in the show, as we have outlined, I think, at length, for lines like this that don't carry purpose or intention. So this feels like deliberate, this planting of the seeds with us and with John about where he really belongs. You know, the fact that he's Aegon Targaryen is, as the showrunners have put it, the most incendiary fact in the world, as we've put it, the heart of the story. But ultimately, if he chooses to be a Stark, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. He can be both of these things. He doesn't have to cast aside his Northern identity just because he found out his real name. Just like Ned told him, you know, you may not have my name, but you have my blood. And he does, and that's still true. So will he potentially reject the crown and return to Winterfell? Perhaps. But this episode really laid out another possibility, which is John returning to reform the Night's Watch. There are so many references to the Night's Watch in this episode, which feels very portentous. Could John potentially go rebuild the wall and reestablish the order, remove himself from the Game of Thrones entirely, possibly as a self-imposed exile if he has to 
do something that he thinks is terrible to stop Danny from becoming the Queen of the Ashes, or just because, like Maester Aemon, he doesn't want the crown. He doesn't mm-hmm. want to rule. He wants to officially abdicate his claim, and he thinks going up back to the Night's Watch, in addition to all his thoughts about the nobility of that order, might be the way to do it. Tormund mentions his assassination, which obviously forces us to think about the Night's Watch. Very bizarre that Danny does not then Nobody, ask John. Yeah, that's just a thing that's out there now, and everybody's just like, oh. Very strange. When John is eulogizing the fallen at the beginning, he borrows lines from Maester Aemon's yeah. eulogy following the Battle of Castle Black in season four. We hear a lot of mirror imagery and mirror lines in those two speeches. It feels really purposeful to not only show that the watch is still a part of who John is, but to draw that parallel between John and another Targaryen who should have been king but chose not to be. And this episode also gave us reasons to recall Aemon's love is the death of duty exchange with John in season one when John is feeding the meat to the ravens. What would Ned do, Aemon asked him, if the day should ever come when your lord father should be forced to choose between honor on the one hand and those he loves on the other? Well, John now knows what choice Ned yep. made in an exact situation like that. And John, it seems, is going to have to face a decision like that of his own very soon. Then there's a farewell with Sam. This was very tender. I thought so, too. Whatever John is going to end up doing, he's going to do it without Sam, who has been his best friend, not named Ghost, and the person who's always there to pick up his confidence when it's flagging. You're the best friend I ever had, Sam says. You too, Sam. Hugs Gilly, finds out that she's pregnant. They've been Mm -hmm. at it again. I love that. I think he knows how it happens. And the look on John's face is fraught, actually. He's overjoyed, but also... You could sense that feeling of, like, I'm missing out on something. Yeah, that was really sad. If it's a boy, Gilly tells him, we want to name him John. I hope it's a girl. (laughs) Oh, God. That was very emotional. Yeah, I mean, John's arc has almost from the beginning seemed like it's headed for a sad ending. An ending that is isolated, that is bittersweet. Remember Ramsey saying, if you think this has a happy ending, you haven't been paying attention. Now, perhaps the only happiness that awaits us is if John does return to the wall after some fateful choice with Danny so he can reunite with Ghost and be himself again. Maybe the Sam farewell placement is deliberate foreshadowing, and maybe that resurrection comment wasn't just a weird gaffe on the show's part. This feels like a really appropriate ending. I, I, I really think things are heading that way. An ending that is, whether it's appropriate or not, devastating, potentially. Jamie's. Let's talk about Jamie and Brienne. Well, they were making eyes at each other. They've been flirting for a while now, but it became quite overt when Jamie and Brienne and Tyrion and Podrick all engaged in Tyrion's favorite, let me guess if you've done a thing, drinking game, which, as we all remember, was so crucial in his relationship with Shay and his early relationship with Bronn. And when it goes to Tyrion, he immediately cuts to the heart of the thing, saying to Brienne, essentially claiming, you're a virgin. And the color leaves her face. Dick move. And she leaves the table saying, I have to piss. <laughs> There's then a quite amusing interlude where Tormund tries to seal the deal and Jamie cock blocks him, leading to Tormund actually all the way up in his feelings, like crying to the hound before the serving girls come in. And they're like, hey, Let's celebrate. And Jamie follows Brienne to her chambers, at which point you started to, like, go, yes, yes. I've rarely been so excited watching a 
seen on a television show. I was loving it. He goes up, knocks on the door. We see Oathkeeper and a visual reminder of their shared history and belief in each other. They have two sides of Ned Stark's sword, and they use that sword to defend Winterfell. Beautiful. Really pretty cool. Some clumsy banter about how hot it is in there (laughs) and the need to disrobe and the difficulty (laughs) removing garments. And then Jamie says, I've never slept with a knight before. <laughs> Brienne admits she never slept with anyone before, and then they kiss and it cuts away. What a moment. I wanted now, every single second. I know you did. Of that we didn't sex get the, scene. We didn't get the, I wanted every second we of it. We didn't get it. Now, considering what happens after, which is mm-hmm. Jamie gets the news from King's Landing. Right. Via, talk about all of that. Via the raven that Sansa against. And he leaves. Does that color in any way your perception of this scene? And where does it fall on the debate of fan service, good or bad? This has been the part of the episode that I've spent the most time amending my own thinking on Mm -hmm. since my initial response, which was absolute despondence. And I I still am despondent over the choice that Jamie made. But I found myself really angry initially of what felt like not the culmination of his character arc that I felt like we had invested eight seasons in seeing come to fruition. I now think, and we're going to get into the arguments for why this is the case, there are a lot of reasons that this makes a ton of sense for Jamie and is true to who he is. And so because I've made more peace with that, I am still okay with the decision to have Jamie and Brienne sleep together, even though he leaves. I just really wish it hadn't happened in the same episode. Here's my take. I'm glad you brought up the same episode. You know, when George wrote Feast for Crows, he intended it, he intended Dance and Feast, the books four and five, to be a single book. But because of literally the physics of bookbinding, mm-hmm. had to split it up into two. Mm-hmm. I think that's a good way to think about this scene. Yes, it makes sense if you consider the through line of Jamie's character, that he would return to Cersei, this person who is, he's literally been with since the womb. He's addicted to in a lot of ways. I think that makes a lot of sense. I think, much like the bookbinding issue, mm-hmm. if you have the culmination of this long flirtation and relationship with Brienne happen in the very same episode that he then returns to Cersei, right. while it makes sense for his character to do that, The human mind simply perceives that as a wild left turn. Yeah. I think that the choice to have Jamie and Brienne sleep together ultimately feels like a culmination of their shared arc that's fully earned. Us desiring it and it being a valid storytelling choice are not actually mutually exclusive. I don't think the fact that people want it means it's fan service by definition. I I agree with that. And I think that maybe Jamie just needed to go all the way in one direction to test what he was capable of to see really if he could be this new person. And his ultimate choice really hurts, but it doesn't negate actually how he feels about Brienne. That's what I'm trying to come to peace with. You know, he does love her. But do we know that? He agonizes over it for two minutes and then leaves. Well, that's where, again, the fact that these things happen in such proximity to each other just really, really complicates our ability to process it. Before he decides to leave, though, there's this brief interlude where he and Tyrion have an exchange with Bronn. <laughs> so Bronn wanders into an inn somewhere in the north and basically tells them, hey, Cersei offered me a wagon of gold if I kill you, so I'm going to give you guys the opportunity to outbid her. And here's what I want. I want Highgarden. They're like, are you serious? And then he fires her. Tyrion offers up Highgarden. Right. He says, what's Double River? Right. Which 
unfortunate for River Run in that case. And just to prove his seriousness, he fires a crossbow bolt very close to Jamie's head. And then feeling that he has secured the promise to receive River Run for his services, he leaves. It's crazy to me still that these two very ruthless men, very rich, very ruthless, very powerful men, would let Bron walk out the door and not go, well, I guess we got to kill Bron now. (laughs) Let's raise the alarm and say, hey, the guy with the, the Lannister crossbows, he's working for Cersei Lannister, everybody in this area. Why don't you hunt him down and kill him? Right. And then we are free of this problem. But instead they're like, yeah, I guess we'll do this. Yeah. Strange. I did enjoy that Bronn, when Jamie says, you know, a cutthroat can't have high garden, that Bronn basically says, well, your ancestors are all just people who at one point took something too. Because I think that's worth keeping in mind as we talk about that idea of breaking the wheel and who deserves to rule and what comes after. You know, is it all just people who are willing to take? Can it ever be another way? Weirdly, Bronn gave us reason to think about that. So then we get the breakup after Jamie learns from Brienne and a gloating Sansa about yeah. Cersei's attack on Danny's fleet, and thus, as Sansa puts in Cersei's inevitable death, I always wanted to be there when they execute your sister. <laughs> Seems like I won't get the chance. Delicious moment, Ooh. honestly. Wonderful. We cut to seeing Jamie sitting at the edge of the bed that he and Brienne have been sharing. She's sleeping naked, and he's thinking, and then he gets up without saying goodbye and goes to saddle his horse, and she follows him out and tries to stop him. And she doesn't even ask where he's going. Because she knows. And that is really part of what makes this so absolutely devastating and tragic is that they know each other that well. They know Mm -hmm. each other that well. They're going to destroy that city, she says. You know they will. He asks her if she's ever run away from a fight and she grabs his face in her hands, which is just agonizing to watch, makes her plea. You're not like your sister. You're not. You're better than she is. You're a good man and you can't save her. You don't need to die with her. Stay here. Stay with me. And she starts to cry and says, please stay. And he says, You think I'm a good man? I pushed a boy out of a tower window, crippled him for life, for Cersei. I strangled my cousin with my own hands just to get back to Cersei. I would have murdered every man, woman, and child in River Run for Cersei. She's hateful. And so am I. Before we talk about this from Jamie's perspective, I want to quickly talk about Brienne because there's been a lot of post-episode discussion about how it didn't feel true to Brienne's character, that she would stand there and cry about this, that she would cry about a man, stand there and and weep as he rode away from her. And I think this is, like, deeply unfair. I think so. I think, for me, I think it was absolutely something that would happen. She's allowed herself to be vulnerable in a way that she's never let happen. Yes. And here is this man who she trusted riding away from her to go be back with his ex-girlfriend. Yes. That is... I don't care who you are and what situation you're in in your life. That is brutal. Yes. My issue with it is it just plays back to the issue of pacing. Like to put Brienne through that for a thing that feels like too abrupt. Right. Just was like I didn't want to see Brienne like that. Even though I think that absolutely anybody would react like that in that situation. The the thing is I found myself like I couldn't get over the fact that Jamie would make her feel that way. You know, because – 
whichever way Jamie's ultimately going here, whatever choice he makes, wherever his character arc is heading, one of the takeaways of all the time we've spent with him is that he's not actually a cruel person. You know, that these horrible things that he's done have come from this place of love. And so to see him make her feel that way, that was really agonizing. But I think it's important to say that, you know, the implication that a woman can't be strong and show her emotions is misguided. And also she loves Jamie. You know, she's experienced things with him that she never has with another person. She doesn't want to lose him. That hurts. And she knows that he's riding basically to a certain death. So she knows that this isn't just a blip. This is probably goodbye forever. That's it. He rides away. She's not seeing him again. He's gone. That's devastating. As for Jamie and his arc, very painful. We've been as invested in his arc as maybe yes. any characters. Maybe my favorite character in this whole story, maybe. So this is not the choice we would want him to make. The question is, is it a choice that makes sense in the story? Yes. Yes. It's a choice. It's hard that, to say it, but it's true. Yes. It is. But again, what I think I was trying to say with my bookbinding metaphor is this. You can't make a book that's 1,500 pages, and you can't make a natural-feeling character development arc in which two seemingly opposed choices happen in the same episode, which is what happens here. Yes, it makes sense that he would do this. It's just really hard to swallow on the heels of what we just saw, of the knighting, and then of he and Brienne finally making love. Right. That's just hard, and it's not going to feel as satisfying as if it unfolded over three episodes or four episodes. And Nikolai, he spoke to Joanna Robinson of Vanity Fair, and he addressed the challenge of, for him as an actor playing this role, kind of how he's processing things like that happening that quickly. He said trying to connect the dots between the scenes was a little complicated because you invest so much time, so many years in these characters. It's worth reading that interview. It was fascinating to hear him talk about that challenge as well and how, for him, he at least had to be able to walk through all those steps in between to understand, for any of the choices that have happened so quickly, how they would have gotten there. So the clip at which this happens makes it very hard to process and accept. But if we remove that aspect and just talk about whether Jamie choosing to return to Cersei makes sense, where are we? So first of all, we should say, just as the caveat of us not knowing what's going to actually happen in the next two episodes, that we don't know for sure what mm-hmm. his motivation is. Maybe he is going to kill her. No, he's, Maybe, gonna, he's going to rescue her. Yeah. He's going to save her. <laughs> just just throw okay, it sure. There's a possibility. Maybe he knows that he can't move on until he's rid of her. And maybe he is treating Brienne this way because he doesn't want her to follow him. He doesn't want her to get caught up in this. Let me tell you something. Be killed. Jamie, there's no better balm for a breakup than moving thousands of miles away with your new girlfriend. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So that's, you know, what I think a lot of us are holding on to is the last desperate hope, but it doesn't seem like where this is heading. What seems most likely is that as much as Jamie loves Brienne, and he does, Cersei has been the one constant in his life. You know, remember what he said to Bronn when they were in Doran about how he wanted to die in the arms of the woman I love. And it was really, really nice to think that that could have been Brienne. Yeah. And he does love her, but Cersei is this part of who he is. Literally part of him. Inextricably part of who he is. He loves them both, but as his speech to Brienne showed, he only thinks he deserves one of them. Right. Only thinks he deserves one future. Only thinks he deserves one reckoning. And that is absolutely tragic. And that outcome 
that actually does feel right and true for Jamie's arc. You know, we thought that this character was going to be this monument to the power of redemption, and maybe he will be. And it's important to say that in so many ways, no matter what the ultimate Cersei-centric choice is, it will be, because Jamie did fight for the living. You know, he did fulfill that oath. He knighted Brienne. He showed her and us and himself that he was capable of doing what was right and helping someone else unlock the best of them, too. And we cannot let those moments lose their power and their potency. You know, he did... He did things that were worth putting down in his pages in the Book of Brothers. He did. But in many ways, his arc now seems destined to be about that part of him that's eternal. Yeah. He tried. He changed as much as he could. He found someone who recognized the good within him. And then after all that, he said, this is who I am. Remember what he said to Brienne when they were traveling on the road and he was her prisoner way back in the day. We don't get to choose who we love. We can choose whether we act on that, though. And Jamie is choosing. You know, he tried. He tried to live another way for a little while. He really did. But he maybe just couldn't fully escape his past because his past was his whole life until right now. We hoped the book precedent of him getting Cersei's plea in the letter to ride to her rescue ahead of her trial and him saying no and going off to ride with Brienne instead maybe meant that this was really the choice that he was going to make, that this would be his ultimate path. But maybe this was just as far as that path could go for him. It casts a new light also on the what about afterwards exchange with Brienne. Yes. He honored his pledge to the living and to Brienne and to himself. But when the war ended, he had to look at what he was without that pledge and without Cersei. And he's tried to redefine himself. And that effort has really made us believe that change was possible and that a person doesn't have to be what the world thinks they are. And as badly as we wanted Jamie to pick Brienne because of what that choice means, we can't also lose sight of what Elena said to him in season seven. You love her. You really do love her. You poor fool. She'll be the end of you. She might be. I think she will be. We can't lose sight also of what Tyrion so trenchantly said this season. She never fooled you. You knew exactly what she was. You loved her anyway. Any of these outcomes is an extremely powerful statement on human nature and the capacity to change on nature versus nurture, on what we deserve versus what we think we deserve. Any outcome is ultimately defensible based on Jamie's arc. We have to pray that the show just takes the time to ask the questions we are and to grapple with the ramifications of choice, of the choice Jamie ultimately makes. I keep on thinking about Jamie's feeling that this is what he deserves. And I think that makes a lot of sense because if you just look at his and Cersei's relationship, what the fuck is he getting out of it? The sex can't be that good. (laughs) Well, it's the only sex he ever knew until Right. But well, this is what I'm saying. Like, (laughs) there's like no emotional support. For as much as he loves her, what has she ever done for him? What has she literally ever done for him? She doesn't support him emotionally, is not really necessarily kind to him, even. Yeah, that's the tragedy of it. She treats him like she brings a, out the worst in she him. Brienne brought like out the a, best. Like a fucking doormat, like a piece of trash. And that apparently is what he thinks he deserves. It's devastating. I had a dream after the episode that he and Brienne, I told you this already, got a cottage and (laughs) moved there and had two babies. Because that's what I think Jamie deserves. But sadly, it doesn't look like he thinks that. Yep. Let's talk about a couple that didn't have sex in this episode, Mm -hmm. even though one of them wanted to very badly. Arya and Gendry. Let's chat about Arya. Arya was present for the funeral that opened the episode, but naturally not around for the party. (laughs) Doing her own thing. (laughs) Really funny. You know, everyone's drinking in her honor, toasting her as the hero of Winterfell, and she's just off shooting arrows, getting ready for the next mission. Always focused. Again, back to my theory that Gendry didn't really, he didn't really impress anyone. She impressed him, though. Clearly. (laughs) But he did not get it done. 
You think if he had, she'd be like, yeah, I want to I want to get hitched. I, no, no, not hitched. But you think like they'd go for one more tumble. Yes. <laughs> yeah. You'd be like, well, let's try it again. Right. But she's more interested. But in she's like, trying ah, to practice. That was f- whatever that was. That was fine. I'm going to shoot arrows. Listen, Gendry doesn't know his own name, as we're going to talk about in the seven. So I, I doubt he knows uh, where the clitoris is. <clears throat> they're, not, they're not really teaching that. <laughs> no one's not teaching about that in, in Westeros. <laughs> oh, boy. Really is Bobby B's son, you know? Bobby Passionate, B. but as Cersei would say, doesn't really know his way around a woman's body. No. <laughs> when Gendry first wonders where Arya is, why she's not at this feast, it leads to a really wonderful exchange between Gendry and the Hound. He says, have you seen Arya? And the Hound says, you can still smell the burning bodies and that's where your head is at. Gendry says, I just want to thank her. The Hound says, I'm sure you do. Look, it's not about that. And the Hound says, of course it's about that, you twat. Why shouldn't it be? They're dead, you're not. And this is really a nice moment in the episode. It's sage words from an unlikely source and they surprisingly powerful reminder that there's no shame in craving the closeness of another person and that part of being alive is forming the connections that make it actually feel like you are alive. Right. And it's also a little bit of a bookend moment back to that beautiful essence of episode two, that episode that we loved so much and suddenly feels so far away. When on the eve of battle, so many characters embrace life in the face of death. This moment from The Hound is a reminder to embrace life after evading death, too, and seeing death claim so many other people. And we see throughout the episode, really interestingly, how very different that idea of returning to life after escaping death looks for each person. Gendry, newly raised as the Lord of Storm's End, feeling pretty, pretty, pretty good (laughs) about himself. I mean, it's been a great, however long it's been, let's say it's been like a couple of days. Listen, Battle aside, mm. tens of thousands of tragic deaths aside, yeah. bang up a couple days for Gendry, he got laid. Oh, yeah. With a woman he cares about. Manned that forge. Manned the forge, and everybody was impressed. Like, hey, Gendry did a great job, right? Yeah. Maybe not enough arrows, but everything else. Definitely not enough arrows. Listen, again. If we have one note, definitely not again, enough arrows. Again, he was doing his best. Maybe if certain people wouldn't jump the line and be like, make my spear. He could get his work done. Anyway, I think he did pretty well. (laughs) Again, had sex with a woman he cares about. Mm -hmm. They beat the Night King. They did. It's true. And he's gone from a lowly blacksmith. Really, he was a blacksmith apprentice and just kind of got like leveled up because no one else was there to do it. (laughs) A lowly blacksmith to the Lord of Storm's End. Pretty good. So why not push your winning streak to the hilt? Let's keep it going. Go all in. He goes to find Arya, who almost shoots him in the face. (laughs) (laughs) An ominous start to that interaction. Not a great start. Read the room. (laughs) Almost takes a quill right to the temple. (laughs) And he's like, hey, listen, crazy day. I know you're out here shooting arrows. I was just in the feast. The sex is in the air. The musk of love. Everybody's rocked up and ready to go. And you're not going to guess what happened. Danny the Dragon Queen is like, uh, you want to be Lord of Storms? And I was like, yeah. So you can actually be my actual lady now. What do you say? Let's get hitched. And he goes down on one knee. He does. He goes all and in. And it is brutal to watch. <laughs> Agonizing to watch. It's like one of those faked 
stadium mm-hmm. proposals. You yeah. know, the ones that where they hire the actors and they do it, and then like, and uh, Ari is just like, nah, yeah, be my wife, be the lady of Storm Zone. That was his mistake. I think if he would have framed it, I'm not saying she would have said yes, but I think if you would have framed it in a language that more evinced partnership and agency and freedom, I think she still would have said no, but it wouldn't have been like a hard no, because I think that lady language is triggering. The only proposal that she accepts here is here's a key, swing by whenever you want to fuck. But go do your thing. Does That's she, the only invitation she Does she accepted. even accept that one? Honestly, again, She'd I don't— She'd be like, I don't need a key. I, I know how to get in on my own. She's also like, <laughs> I mean, I got the best of you. And honestly, like, I was like, this is it? This is what people are talking about? It's not great. You know, it made me think about the moment when Olena is sharing her sexual history with Marjorie. Oh, and she's saying the only thing he wanted— was what I'd given him the night before. Like, that's the vibe you get from Gendry. Like, Gendry Arya is a, f- a fiend for it right now. Just ruined him yeah, he's, for other women. He's absolutely <laughs> decimated. So, but I, the other thing is, like, he really cares about her, yeah, too. Yeah, so that's like, the that's, thing. It is a very ultimately sweet and tender scene between two people who have great affection for each other and a lot of shared history, but ultimately are not on the same path moving forward. And the thing that's so cool about the scene is that, guess what? That's fine. And Arya is not afraid to say it because that's a choice she's made, the choice to be who she is. She leans down because he's still on one knee, poor fucker. Very, very very tough. Kisses him very tenderly and then kind of like pulls him back up, (laughs) which is hopefully when he knew that. It's like the moment on The Bachelor right before the dude's about to take the ring out of his pocket and The Bachelorette's like, Stop. Gendry that was the moment when Gendry knew. It's very rough. She says, you'll be a wonderful lord, and any lady would be lucky to have you, but I'm not a lady. I never have been. That's not me. And it is a callback to her foundational season one exchange with her father, Ned. That's what Game of Thrones is good at now. Callbacks. A lot only, of callbacks. Only. A lot of callbacks. This is one I enjoyed. When they're talking about Bran and what Bran's future is after his injury. And Arya asks her father, can I be a lord of fast?" And he says, you will marry a high lord and rule his castle, and your sons shall be knights and princes and lords. And what does she say? No, that's not not me. me. And that's an idea that she echoed when she came across Nymeria in season seven and tried to convince Nymeria to go north with her and then realized, of course, that the wolf, her wolf, Mm -hmm. just like Arya, wouldn't do someone else's bidding anymore and said, that's not you. This wasn't Arya in season one, and it isn't Arya now. She's not going to conform or live her life based on social norms or what somebody else wants. And this was really refreshing in this episode because amid all of the other choices the characters are making, this was a really effective reminder of how nature and nurture can intermingle. Mm -hmm. Arya is true to herself and always has been. She's always been the that's not me girl, but she's also evolved in myriad ways since that exchange with Ned. She's not the same person. Her saying this isn't akin to saying I'm exactly who I was then. All of the changes that she's undergone, all of that growth, they're part of the fabric of her identity now as well. But there's this fundamental truth to her and to her identity that's fixed, that is eternal, and that she continues to live her life by an honor even as she grows and evolves. And I really liked how this moment explored that balance. Sad that Gendry didn't have the good dick. Didn't know how to wield the hammer. Does not have the good dick. And also, maybe not even the good tongue. And also, he needs some friends. Because this is a move. You got to run this by somebody. You you need a sounding board in this situation. Like, hey, I've known this girl for a while. 
and we kind of haven't seen each other and then we got together again next thing and then we like picked up right where we left off and we hooked up and like I want to marry her. You need to run that by people so people can be like, mm, hey, let's just pull up the reins. Here's the thing. On that one. Who's his one friend? Really? It's Davos. And you know Davos's response. He would have been like, Davos would be like, what's what, a wife? What's a, it's great. <laughs> it's great when they're not here. I love it. <laughs> I love a long distance relationship. It's fantastic. I haven't seen my wife in seven years. No marriage. Sounds liberating. Wonderful. <laughs> I've been shooting game at Missandei of Noth several years now. It's fantastic. No wife. Beautiful. Oh, Just me and me nubs. Man. Just so bad for Davos' wife. <laughs> <laughs> Just keeping that candle in the window. <laughs> um, it makes sense then, with Arya staying so true to herself, that she would set her own course, yep. and choose to be on her own again. Perhaps to check a name mm. off her list. Heading to King's Landing. Would uh, seem so. Just as she was poised to do before she learned from Hot Pie, shouts to Hot Pie, wherever pie. you are, that John had retaken Winterfell and decided to set off back to the north. Like many others, Arya is picking right up where she left off mm-hmm. before the battle, despite all the traumas and various things that happened during that battle. She's rediscovering her family. She's bonding with Sansa, reuniting with Jon, losing her virginity, getting rid of that thing, casting that little piece of baggage off, killing the Night King. Pretty good. Again, you want to talk about like who's had a good couple days? Oh, yeah. Arya Stark is crushing it. I mean, saved humanity. No big deal. Absolutely crushing it. Saved the world. No big deal. She has the Lord of Storms End so knackered by her skills, her hips not lying, Mm -mm. that he is like, uh, marry me right now. Yeah. I've been Lord for five minutes. I'm going to give it all to you. When she says no, he's like, not today. And she's like, not ever. My guy. (laughs) Sorry. Peace. She reunited with her family and she killed the existential threat to the world. Quite a run. It's a good run. Hot run for Arya Stark. And now she's heading south, perhaps to kill Cersei. Mm. Not on her own for long, though, because who should she come across on the and road. Of course. But the Hound, we're back in our favorite buddy comedy, folks. Interesting moment when the Hound, who says he couldn't stand being mm-hmm. around the crowds, and Arya says, me neither. And he's like, why? You're a big hero now. That's right. What does she say? Don't like heroes. Very interesting. Yeah. On the heels of all of the is Arya the prince that was promised talk, to have her position it that way. Really a quintessential George R. R. Martin idea. Right. The real heroes are the ones who don't seek to be the heroes. The ones who don't crave the praise or the power just the ones who are focused on achieving a goal and fighting for plus all that's right all the heroes are dead let's be real being a hero sucks because that means you're gonna die soon that's like the danny speech to Tyrion in season seven though all heroes just go get killed she's right i don't know she's right i don't know john's alive i mean he died once but yeah but Arya's alive the died once i think is crucial (laughs) Let's not let's not elide that fact. Plenty of heroes on the show are alive. Yeah. Go be a hero. And as they're riding along, there's this nice little exchange where they kind of very quickly and organically fall back into their prior mm-hmm. traveling companion days. And the hound says, must have felt good sticking a knife in that horned fucker. And Arya says, 
felt better than dying. I love this brevity from (laughs) Arya, conveying a core idea in just a few words. They're not on the battlefield with the enemy right now, but a line like that reminds us that for so many of the characters, death is still ever-present. It's always waiting to catch them in its grasp, or at least they think it might be. You can choose to give in to that fear, you can choose to run away from that reality, or you can choose to fight it to achieve as much as you can for as long as you can until the end comes for you like it comes for everyone. So when the Hound tells Arya that he has some unfinished business in King's Landing, referring, of course, has to be to his brother, the Mountain, the inevitable Clegane Bowl showdown that looms, he says, I don't plan on coming back. And Arya replies, neither do I. Mm. Devastating given that it's possible we've seen the last of the Stark children together. But in terms of that idea of not fearing death, of embracing death, of embracing the idea that you just have to keep fighting, they both know that death likely awaits, but they're choosing not to let that paralyze them or stop them. It's that Barrack idea that he shared with John in season seven. The enemy always wins, and we still need to fight him. Arya is fighting him. Let's chat about Sansa for a bit. Yeah. Her now signature side yes. eye <laughs> toward Danny. It's really like front eye quite often. It's right, just not right, hiding it. She's turning her face directly at yes. Danny and being like, what? Populates much of the episode, as do her equally signature challenges yeah. to those who seek to rule. Sansa ultimately is right when she challenges Danny about the soldiers needing time to heal. Rhaegal definitely needed time to heal. But, was Sansa right to tell Tyrion the truth about Jon's parentage? Let's look at all sides of this here. We've already discussed what Tyrion did with that information. Yeah. But from Sansa's perspective specifically, on the inside of the episode, the showrunners positioned Sansa's choice as Littlefinger-esque. Weiss said, quote, she's a student of Littlefinger, and she knows how information travels, and she can think many steps ahead into the game the way Littlefinger did. Hmm. So on the one hand, Sure, this makes sense. Sure. Because Littlefinger's execution was a defining moment for Sansa, not only in showing us how savvy she had become, but in illustrating how she had taken the tactics, the strategies of her enemies, and learned how to deploy them as weapons of her own to use to protect herself and her family instead. When you brought me back to Winterfell, she told Littlefinger in the season seven finale, right before Arya cuts his throat. Mm -hmm. You told me there's no justice in the world, not unless we make it. Thank you for all your many lessons, Lord Baelish. I will never forget them. And clearly, she hasn't. Right. Her decision to channel more of what she learned from him in order to fight for what she believes is right, in some ways, fully tracks. The flip side is that Sansa learned how dangerous people like Littlefinger are. And how untrustworthy they are. So it's riveting to see her use those lessons to thwart people like him, but it's a little unmooring to see her use them to be like him, which is how the showrunners position the choice. Does that feel right? No, for various reasons. One, as we've talked about various places, and we will surely discuss here, Sansa had just gotten done telling Tyrion to his face that he right. was a mess, is making bad decisions, and is making really stupid decisions. Right. I once thought you were the cleverest man I knew. Well, now she's trusting him with really blockbuster information. And furthermore, when you think about the way that Littlefinger operated, which was to kind of sow chaos and then to take advantage of that chaos, I guess through that lens, this makes sense. 
But Littlefinger really never had skin in the game, at least not until Sansa. Never had anything to worry about except his own skin, I should say. John is going south. Sansa is expressing quite fair concerns about his safety going south. And mm-hmm. here she is handing information to Tyrion that if Danny realizes that this has gotten out, that John has told people, John's life could very well be in danger. Right. So to do this in this kind of way just feels, it's actually not that strategic. It's no longer in your control. You don't know where this information is going. You don't get to say where it goes. You're not like sending messages to the houses of the realm, mm-hmm. feeling them out for their support of John. You're just kind of dropping this bomb on people and then walking away. Right. One of the defining traits of Sansa's arc is control. Yeah. Understanding the power great of point. being in control. And so I agree with absolutely everything you just said. The upshot of her choice is kind of twofold. She knows, obviously, she understands as she is imparting this information to Tyrion that he's going to share it. She, That's she why she's it. telling she expects it. Him. Right. Yes. And she probably knows specifically that he'll share it with Varys because these are people that she's been around in some capacity for years. She understands another lesson from Littlefinger. We're all liars here. She knows that scheming, plotting is part of who these people are. Once they have that information, they're going to ask. That is also, as you just outlined, the part that doesn't then track as fully with the logic behind the decision because the bulk of the Sansatarian interactions this season, while tender and while reminding us of how invested we are in that pairing and that relationship, have boiled down to her saying, you have bad judgment. Yeah, basically. Like, I don't understand why you support Danny. Right. I'm going to look at you every time I see you laughing with her and make sure you know that I don't understand why you support her. Meanwhile, what is your fascination with Cersei, who by your own admission has tried to kill you numerous times? That line that you mentioned a minute ago, I used to think you were the cleverest man alive. That was directly in response to Sansa being absolutely astounded Astounded. that Tyrion could believe for a minute that Cersei was really sending her troops to support the North. Then, of course, when they're in the crypts together during the battle and— Tyrion is basically offering up this alternate reality where maybe they could have been together. And it's, it is quite touching, but yeah. Sansa's, what's her response to that? Yeah, it never would work. It would never work. Why? The Dragon Queen. Yeah. Your divided loyalties would become a problem. So again, on the one hand, that tracks because we know that this is an effort to exploit that divided loyalty. She knows that Tyrion does right. have affection for her. She knows he has affection for John. She yeah. knows that he is, in many ways, a irrational, one of the most rational people in the realm— But it is hard to accept that she took information this precious, this realm-shattering, of course, information that John had made her swear she'd keep secret, and shared it with a man who, for the bulk of season eight, she looked at across feasts in a how-can-you-support-the-person-you're-next-to way and told to his face that she didn't think he was acting logically. Chaos is a ladder. That's fine. Okay. That's a lesson that Littlefinger taught us. That's a lesson he taught Sansa. That's a lesson he taught everyone he ever interacted with. But the reason that so many of us really root for Sansa and find her so admirable and worthy is because the ladders that she builds are right. that she builds them with facts. Yeah. She builds them with control and with conviction and ferocity and with commitment to seeing something through fully. Not just whims that once right. they're out of her hands, they're out she of her hands completely. Cannot, cannot control the narrative. You know, it's like, why did we love Tywin? Mm-hmm. Because he spun a web so that his victims didn't even know they were in the web. Writing letters, writing letters, mm-hmm. writing letters. He didn't just blurt something out right. and then walk away. Right. And I think Sansa, certainly after all she's seen, learning at the foot of Littlefinger, having been so close to power, seeing Cersei up close, 
seeing mm-hmm. Tywin up close, seeing the way these people operate, I think she would realize that information is power and you don't just give it up without thinking it through in some fashion. Of course, she's considered that he will tell people. But again, this puts John's life directly in danger. She has no idea what happens next. What if Danny finds out? Will John act on this? Right. Tyrion and Varys seek to elevate John, thus protecting him and insulating him from Danny's wrath. She doesn't know that. Well, that's the other thing. You know, obviously, we already earlier in the episode discussed the scene between Sansa, Arya, Bran, and John, and how we didn't get access to their responses directly. And we feel that here yes, too, we really because do. we don't know. We don't know. We what don't did know. Sansa say to John in response? She, yeah, perhaps she said something similar. Did she say to him, "We have to go talk to yeah. Tyrion about this immediately"? I'm telling you, this is the right move. Right. You know, has she made an appeal to him directly? Yeah, we don't know. We have absolutely no idea. So again. We admire Sansa as a thinker. This is in no way meant to diminish her standing as somebody who's capable of playing the game. She's playing the game a lot better than most of them at this point in the story. She, again, just thinks Tyrion is an idiot and is like, well, okay, you go do what you will with this, and then that's it. It's out of her hands. Very tough. Do you blame her or hold her culpable for just the actual decision to tell, like to not keep the information Secret. Because on the one hand, that's on John. You know, as soon as you put that out there, it's as as we hear Vera say elsewhere in the episode, once this many people know it's not a secret, it's information. And that's on John, not on Sansa. But he asked her to swear and she did. I mean, I ultimately put it on John for being naive. Now, you could say, like, he's his father's son, meaning Ned. That said, you know, John uses Ned as a North Star all the time. Mm Mm-hmm. Ned's most consequential act, you could argue, was keeping a lie secret yes. for 17 years, thus ensuring John could even be around yeah. to ask people to swear to yet another secret. And at the expense yes. of his relationships with the people he loved. You yeah. know, one of the reasons that John cannot keep this secret, and I think John's decision to tell is very true to his character. I do think. But one of his reasons is, well, you know, they're my family. Well, Catelyn was Ned's wife, and he still chose to keep this from her despite the absolute toxic force that that lie ended up being in her life and in their marriage. Danny, literally his aunt. It was nice to hear Varys say that out loud in this episode, I will say. She's his aunt. It's like, yeah, someone said it out loud. She is. Let's talk about the other key Sansa scene in this Mm -hmm. episode for a minute. Her long anticipated reunion with the Hound. This takes place in the. Winterfell Hall, the celebration, the feast after the funeral. And we have waited a really, really, really long time to see these two back together. This was one of our most anticipated reunions heading into the season. And when she first walks over to him, it's like thrilling. Oh, my God, finally at last. But the actual interaction we got left us very cold. Used to be you couldn't look at me. That was a long time ago. I've seen much worse than you since then. Yes, I've heard. Had you a broken in? Had you a broken in rough? And he got what he deserved. I gave it to him. Oh. Hounds. <laughs> You've changed, little bird. None of it would have happened if you left King's Landing with me. No little finger, no Ramsey, none of it. Without little finger and Ramsey and the rest, I would have stayed a little bird all my life. This 
really did not sit well with us or with a lot of other viewers of the show. Now, we want to be very clear about something. Victims respond differently to trauma, Mm -hmm. and we would absolutely never tell any individual person how to process their trauma or what kind of response is valid. That's not what this is about at all. The show's decision, though, to position Sansa's sexual trauma, her rape, as the source of her strength is really deeply upsetting. Of course, Sansa's experiences are a part of her life. Right. Yes. Yes. Just like any other character on the show or any other person in the real world. But she's strong and wise and bold and worthy because of her innate courage and conviction. Because of who she is, you know, her intellect, her wit, her cunning, her confidence, the commitment that she shows to her family, to the people in her life that she values. That's all who she is. And it would have been no matter what. So to in any way imply that she needed to suffer in this specific fashion, which is what that line, without Littlefinger and Ramsay and the rest, I would have stayed a little bird all my life does, is really really distressing, particularly so given the show's history with this specific plot point. Sansa's rape is one of the most controversial storytelling choices in the history of the show, a show invention. The logic that was used to defend it was in essence this. Well, she'll suffer and then she'll become stronger as a result of what she suffered through. And they doubled down on that with this line, doubling down on a really awful choice. The explanation at the time was twofold. What you mentioned, and then, hey, this is a brutal world and brutal things happen and terrible things happen, which is a point that we've brought up to kind of highlight various other things that happen in this world, which are used to kind of conveniently fit or not fit that it's a brutal world rubric. My issue with this, and it's the same as yours, is that, so we're going to say that Sansa would not be a leader, would not be a great administrator and a competent lady of Winterfell, inspirational person. If this had not happened to her, I just find that distressing. Yes. Jason, I saw it sink beneath the waves. Mm, That must have been glorious. The glory is yours, Maester. So please assemble the conclave. Head to the Citadel. Teach us everything we need to know about how to slay a dragon, because it seems easy. It's not that hard. Get a big crossbow. Now make it bigger. Now make it even bigger. Put it on a boat! Anyway, rest in power, Rhaegal. You deserve so much better. Riderless for most of your life. Spent your adolescence chained up in the basement of the Great Pyramid. You hate the cold, and yet you spend the last weeks of your life in the north fighting against the horror of the army of the dead and the Night King and your former brother Viserion who clawed and bit you and injured your wings. And those injuries kept you from being able to fly with your normal power and grace, which led, unfortunately, to the scorpion bolt. It pierced your belly and the other one that nicked your wing and the other one that got you through the neck, the kill shot. And, of course, your tragic demise in the ocean. Some, after seeing this episode, have asked if dragons can indeed be brought down by such a weapon. And the short answer is yes, but there are some caveats, at least in the book world. In 10 AC, the war to bring Dorne into the realm after Aegon's conquest was staggering into its seventh year with no end in sight. While the rest of the continent recognized the conqueror as its king, the Dornish, true to the words of House Martell, remained unbowed, unbent, and unbroken. Dragons ruled the sky, burning castle after castle in Dorne many more than once. The Targaryen army and its allies from the Reach and the Stormlands roamed the mountains and the deserts all in vain. Dornish fighters simply disappeared whenever danger 
presented itself, never giving open battle, never giving the dragons the opportunity to rain hell down on them. They destroyed food stores, poisoned wells and drinking holes, denying sustenance to their invaders who suffered from thirst. After a Dornish raid into the Reach tore a trail of destruction all the way to the gates of Old Town, Aegon and his sisters, Rhaenys and Visenya, returned to Dorne with their dragons to take their vengeance. Rhaenys and her dragon Meraxes were attacking Hellholt, the seat of House Uller in southern Dorne on the banks of the Brimstone River, when Marax. disaster struck. Meraxes! A defender's scorpion bolt took Meraxes in the eye as the dragon was wheeling above the castle, and Meraxes, mortally wounded, crashed into the fortress, destroying a portion of it. Rhaenys may have survived to be tortured in the castle's dungeon. It's unclear if that happened. So there is a precedent for a projectile weapon like Euron's super scorpions or big crossbow injuring, even killing a dragon. But in the book, such a shot would need to find a weak spot like the dragon's eyes, because a fully mature dragon scales are thick and provide excellent protection. When the Dornish Prince Moria launched volleys of scorpion bolts at the dragon's Vermithor, Caraxes, and Vega <laughs> during the Dance of Dragons Civil War, the missiles that actually managed to connect because hitting a flying dragon is actually really hard. Mm -hmm. The missiles that managed to connect were just harmlessly deflected by the dragon scales. Clearly, on the show, dragon scales are nowhere near as hardy. Still, in the books, dragons have been brought down by simple brute force. During the Dance of Dragons again, from which most of our information about dragon combat and dragon deaths and injury come, a crazed mob whipped into a religious fervor by a messianic leader known as the Shepherd, who said that King's Landing would never be clean and all, until all the dragons were dead, stormed the dragon pit where the Targaryen dragons were chained and stabled, and four would eventually perish there. A man known as Hob the Hewer, who is a woodsman, leapt onto the neck of Shirkos, a young she-dragon, and drove his axe down into her head. Now, she was not fully mature, rideable, but not fully mature. And yet, Shirkos' scales were so formidable that it took Hob seven blows, seven powerful blows, to kill her. And that was only after the youngster had surely maimed and killed many, many, many other riders. Morgul, what a cool name. Amazing. Amazing name. Very, like, Mordorian. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> Morgul, another young dragon, was killed when a fanatic known as the Burning Knight stabbed it repeatedly in the eye. Tyraxes burned so many rioters that their bodies blocked the entrance to his little lair in the dragon pit. Unfortunately, some of those rioters found a back door, and they managed to get in behind him. And when he tried to turn to face them, he got tangled up in his chains and was overcome. Dreamfire, a fully mature dragon nearly a century old, put up a incredible fight and then died in very tragic fashion. She was strong enough to break her bonds, so she took wing, flying around the interior of the dome covering the dragon pit, raining fire down on the fanatics who loosed a constant torrent of arrows, crossbow bolts at her. And again, who knows how many died by her flames and teeth and talons, but eventually one of these missiles managed to scratch her eye and driven mad by partial blindness and pain, she flew into the bottom of the dome and it collapsed and crushed her. As this bloodletting was going on, Cyrax, which was a huge and absolutely fearsome mount of Queen Rhaenyra Targaryen, was released from her pen in the Red Keep by the Queen's son Joffrey. The prince was seeking to halt the slaughter at the dragon pit, attempted to ride Cyrax, unfortunately, 
as he should have known as a freaking Targaryen. <laughs> Once a dragon is bonded to its rider, it will not accept another while its rider lives. Now, Cyrax flew towards the dragon pit, drawn by the scent of blood, the sounds of battle. But somewhere over the city, shrugged or shook him off or banked or something, and Joffrey fell and plummeted to his death. Tough look for my prince. <laughs> Cyrax then, rather than stay aloft, this is kind of mysterious why she did this, rather than stay aloft and out of harm's way, able to like rain fire down on these attackers, she landed in the pit instead and perished in ways that are unclear. Absolutely unclear how that happened, but it's known that she killed many, 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 many of these rioters. All in all, 18 dragons perished during the dance, including those at the dragon pit. So let's hope the Drogon, the last hope of House Targaryen, the last hope of magic in this world, potentially, makes it through. Protect Drogon! Protect Drogon! Mal? Yeah? Lord of Light? We play his game for him, we fight his war and win. And then he fucks off! <laughs> no signs, no blessings! Except for bringing John. Who knows what he wants? Better head to the Sept instead to bathe in the land of the Seven. By sharing seven of our favorite tidbits from this episode, lightning round style, I will go first. Number one. Since this episode's initial airing, that rascally coffee cup <laughs> visible in front of Daenerys has been digitally removed from the episode on streaming platforms, but you can still spot something else in that scene. Mm. Showrunners Benioff and Weiss, who appear furred and bearded among the wildlings, listening to Tormund's loving ode to John. Number two. While the offending coffee cup is stolen the headlines, there was another mistake early in the episode that ultimately is a far more puzzling canonical conundrum. Gendry got his own name wrong. <laughs> that was fucking crazy. This uh, is tough. He says to Arya, I'm not Gendry Rivers anymore. Bum, bum, bum. This is in the run-up to his ill-fated proposal. Here's the thing, bud. You never were. Yes. First of all, bastards from the Crownlands get the surname Waters. Ah, Waters, Rivers. <laughs> You'd think someone who spent three seasons in a boat would know the difference, by the way. Not Rivers. Rivers is the surname associated with, as you might have guessed, the Riverlands. But that's not all. He shouldn't even be Gendry Waters. Yeah. Because only acknowledged bastards of Highborns get surnames. So as an unacknowledged bastard, right, he was Gendry nobody. never had a surname at all. Number three, some casting rumor tea leaf reading here. Whoa. One of the strangest moments of the episode occurs when Varys is just like, the new Prince of Dawn pledges his support. My dude couldn't even get a name. Who is this guy in the books? Quentin Martell is Doran's eldest son, but he doesn't exist on the show. Tristane did, and the Sand Snakes killed my dude. Actor Toby Osmond was cast in season eight to play a mystery role, which he described as, quote, royal. Mm -hmm. We still haven't seen him, so it seems likely that he's the Dornish prince in question, meaning Dorn should, in fact, be entering the story in the final two episodes. Could the show be introducing Quentin? A little late for my, my Quentin heads out there. <laughs> Could it be an Ironwood, a Dane? My Dark Star and Edric heads oh, at. Imagine man. just giving Dark Star Edric like an episode and change. Bringing in Edric to talk about Wyla and being John's milk <laughs> at this point would be incredible. Dude, what a flex <gasps> that would be. Oh, can't wait for an explanation to this line, which made no sense. Number four, when Bran and Tyrion are discussing Bran's wheelchair, Bran mentions Darren Targaryen. Now, he is talking about Darren the second. Yeah which we know because he gives a 120 years ago timestamp. But 
Still, book readers yes. might have felt a little tingle there and found themselves thinking about Darren the first. Yep. Not only as another figure from Targaryen history, but because the young dragon is one of Jon's heroes in the books. Pick better heroes, my dude. <laughs> <laughs> when John when John is trying to convince his uncle Benjamin to take him to the wall and let him join the Night's Watch, and Benjamin pushes back because of John's age, John says Darren Targaryen was only 14 when he conquered Dorne. Benjamin's response <laughs> Epic. Foreshadows John's eventual assassination. He says a conquest that lasted a summer. Your boy king lost 10,000 men taking that place and another 50 trying to hold it. Someone should have told him that war isn't a game. Also, Darren Targaryen was only 18 when he died. Or have you forgotten that part? Now, was this a deep Easter egg that was just a reminder of John's history here and all that he suffered during sacrifice? Or could it potentially bode ill for what awaits John in the final two episodes? Number five, is Drogon the last dragon? We ever going to get any more? Could he or she lay some eggs? Now, we know very little about dragon reproduction. We do know that dragons lay clutches of several, perhaps up to five eggs at a time. And this can happen several times over the course of a dragon's life, which can span several centuries. The laying of eggs is the only way that we can ascertain a dragon's gender, as far as the maesters are concerned. However, the Jurassic Park corollary, Mm. can dragons reproduce asexually? This is a theory held by Maester Aemon, for one, and the legendary academic Septon Barth in the books. They both believed that dragon genders were, quote, fluid, changing according to circumstance and need. So, I wonder if Drogon... It's going to lay those eggs. I hope so. Number six, the funeral pyres, the funeral, the pairings that we see as the torchbearers light the pyres all carried real emotional significance. In addition to the touching pre-burning moments that we see between Danny and Jorah and Sansa and Theon, the actual lightings of the pyre tapped into the character's shared history. Danny, of course, lights Jorah's. Arya lights Barracks. Interesting, given all the history that passed between them and his ultimate sacrifice to help her survive. Sam lit Ed's. Ed got his wish at last for Sam to burn his body. <laughs> A little late. And has been asking for it for years and years and years. But he got it. And John, really sad moment here, lights Liana Mormont's pyre. And before the torches come out, Sansa's farewell to Theon includes a moment where she places a direwolf pin, the sigil of House Stark, of course, on his chest. A callback obviously, to the scene when John tells Theon that he doesn't have to choose, that he can be a Greyjoy and a Stark. Here, Sansa is saying, you were a Stark. He burned Winterfell. <laughs> it's like, yeah! <laughs> <laughs> Number seven. <laughs> the new opening credits continue to change each week. It's wonderful. This week's featured the aforementioned pyres and also damage to Winterfell. If you look closely, the clock gears of the castle twitch and flop, failing to fully spring to attention, almost like the bandaged branches of the Whomping Willow twitching in protest of the damage inflicted upon them. I love this. Jason. Yeah? If you have any last words, now is the time. Hello. Because each episode, we're going to honor the person who played the game, advanced their cause in some tangible way. And this week, we're not happy about it. No one's happy about it. Doesn't feel good. Does not feel good. But the winner of our champion's purse is... Cersei Lannister. This is like, I feel like Jamie explaining like his whole fascination with, I'm not happy about it. It doesn't feel good, but here we are. (laughs) Listen, 
no one had a perfect episode. Cersei could have and would have, you would imagine, having the entire leadership of her enemies before her with very few men, dragon on the ground, multiple scorpions aimed at them, but she didn't do it. She didn't do it. She also robbed herself of red keep protection and leverage by killing Missande, a valuable hostage, one would think. Also, Braun sold her out or at least is open to other bids. And she's almost definitely going to die yeah. in episode five. But in the meantime, hey, a lot of other things went right. Yes, she easily, very easily tricks Euron into thinking he's the father of her baby. It literally takes one nod from Kyburn, okay, yeah. and that's it. Oh, yes, of course. Yes, that is your child. <gasps> A ploy, by the way, that remains intact despite Tyrion, who should not know that she's pregnant with Euron's baby, given the timing of How's the baby doing? Shouting <laughs> about her being pregnant in front of Euron, who does not piece it together, win for Cersei. At least he doesn't piece it together here. She wins a massive yes. military victory when you're on using the stunningly effective, even bigger crossbow, <laughs> now with more crossbow strength, <laughs> kills Rhaegal, decimates Danny's fleet, and captures Missandei, further evening the odds, heading into battle after the Army of the Dead did exactly what she wanted and cut through much of Danny's army for her. And though she doesn't know it yet, Jamie's on his way back to her, possibly to kill her, sure, but possibly to be with her at the end and die in her arms. And, uh, Great dress. Yeah. Incredible wardrobe now. She's morning black, cast away, full red of House Lannister. Pop of color. A lion in full bloom. <laughs> All right, friends. Vomiting is not celebrating, nor is it podcasting, as we keep telling Isaac Lee and Zach Cram, our indispensable producer and researcher. We hope that you had as much fun as we did today, that you're as excited as we are Woo! <laughs> to continue this journey, and that you'll join us again next week for the penultimate episode. <laughs> of the season and the series, where the last war awaits. Until then, remember, you're not the only one who's clever. Hello? Yes, it's the cable repairman. I've heard your cable's out. Cable? Yes. You let me in, please? Jamie! Yes, that's right. It's me. Oh, is it hot in here? I just need to get out of this uh, doublet. It's, could you help me? I don't have a hand. Yeah, just un just pull that one. Perfect. Great. Yes. I'm not here to fix the cable. I'm here to lay some pipe. That's right. You know what I'm talking about, Brienne. I, I actually don't. I am literally a virgin. I do not understand. I'm here to have sex with you. Today, here and now. What do you say? Oh, Jamie. Oh, my God. You know, I've never never made love to a knight before. Oh, really? That's right, because I've never made love. I only fuck, Brienne. That's what this is about. Sex. Sex.